you hear me? Am I on? Can you hear me? What an incredible crowd. It is such an honor to be able to stand before you tonight to make my case that Jesus did claim to be divine. It's also very exciting for me to be able to share a stage with one of the leading New Testament scholars in the world today, Dr. Bart Ehrman. In fact, this debate was, is actually four years in the making. In 2011, Dan Wallace and Bart had an excellent debate at SMU, and I went to him afterwards, and I asked him, you know, what, what do you think about debating me one day, you know, maybe, maybe sometime in the near future about something about Jesus? And I'll never forget how he responded. He said, and who are you? <laughs> I want to give some well-deserved compliments to my opponent right away from the start. So if later we end up getting into this fight, you remember I said these things. <laughs> Some believe Bart Ehrman is enemy number one of all things Christianity, but I want to say that is not true, and I, and I mean that. Not only has much of his scholarship been helpful to better understand issues in early Christianity, but he has also been an ally for Christianity in a number of ways. Let me just give you a few examples from his books. He, he wrote the book, Truth and Fiction in the Da Vinci Code. Gotta love that. Exposing the myths of good old Dan Brown. Myths like that Jesus was called God for the first time at the Council of Nicaea, or that they picked and choose which books would be at the Council of Nicaea and threw some out and added some. You know, i got to correct someone on Facebook almost every week on that issue. So very nice that he wrote that book, Correcting Those Myths. Also, Did Jesus Exist? An excellent book, absolutely dismantling the mythicist position for those who have ears to hear. In case you haven't read certain blogs on the Internet or Facebook comments, mythicism is the deep faith held by some that Jesus didn't exist. Ever since the late 1700s, every generation seems to have one or two people with PhDs that argue for this view. But isn't this very nice that in our generation we have someone like Bart Ehrman to not only refute them, but to say to their face, which he did by the way, that they really just look foolish to the rest of the scholarly community. So I just want to say, Bart, on behalf of all Christendom, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants, thank you for writing. Lastly, I wanted to mention the book that is central to our debate tonight, How Jesus Became God, his most recent book. Bart argues in this book that it was the belief in the resurrection of Jesus that led to the rise of Christianity, which is true, which is true. We can find common ground on that, unbeliever and believer. And he makes clear in that chapter that this could have been because Jesus actually bodily rose from the dead. He even says at one point it's not a historical sin to leave the question of Jesus' resurrection open, and I really appreciate that. Well, enough with the compliments. Let me now tell you where Bart is wrong. <laughs> Did Jesus of Nazareth claim to be divine? Did he claim to be God in some sense? Bart and I agree this is one of the most important questions of Western civilization. Two other questions should be asked in conjunction with this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And is Jesus, in fact, Lord of the world? With someone like Bart Ehrman, I prefer starting with the question, did Jesus even claim to be in some sense one with the God of Israel. Because this, more than the other questions, is a historical question. One through rigorous historical investigation, we can find the answer to. I say yes, the historical Jesus did claim to be divine. He says no. But it's important for you to understand about this question is one does not have to be a Christian to affirm this question, to say that Jesus did claim to be divine. Bart is an agnostic, and he could be convinced tonight that Jesus did in fact claim to be God and still remain an agnostic. Just because Jesus claimed to be God doesn't mean he was God, right? However, if you become convinced tonight that Jesus claimed to be God, and I'm confident you will, 
then we are back to the powerful C.S. Lewis trilemma. Lewis argued, you can't say Jesus is a good man, but not God. Because Lewis said, if Jesus did claim to be God, then he was either a liar, he was a lunatic, meaning he was deluded or crazy or deceived, he thought he was God, but he wasn't, or he was Lord. If this man of colossal dimensions, Jesus of Nazareth, claimed to be God, then this trilemma is put forcefully before us tonight. Was he lying? Was he crazy? Or was he telling the truth? So let me lay out my case. I have three main points that I'm going to be arguing tonight. First, the earliest writings we have about Jesus, a poem and certain creedal traditions quoted in Paul's early letters, proclaim him as God. Second, Jesus made implicit claims that he is divine during his public ministry. Third, Jesus made a very explicit claim to divinity the night before he was crucified. So let's begin not with Jesus, but instead with the earliest poem and creeds we have about Jesus. If Jesus did claim to be God, wouldn't we expect his earliest disciples and the earliest writings we have about him to say that he was God? Well, that's exactly what we do find. After Jesus dies on the cross in AD 30, what are the earliest sources we have for Jesus? This chart might help you kind of see how the sources lay out. So we have the four Gospels. Notice uh, it's a little bit of debate exactly when they're written, but between AD 60 and 90, I think we can, can agree that all four Gospels were written. But notice Paul's early letters go even earlier. They date within 50 to 60, 20 to 25 years after Jesus' death. But we can go even earlier. We know that Paul, in these letters, quoted a, at least one poem and some creedal traditions from within. And they date, to, according to many scholars, within 10, maybe even 5 years after Jesus' death. The most classic and earliest example of one of these creedal traditions is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Kephas, meaning Peter, and then to the Twelve. Many date this tradition to be within about five years after Jesus' death. And it's pretty incredible what it's saying. It's saying he's the Christ. It's saying Jesus died for our sins. It's saying he fulfilled scriptures. It's saying that he rose from the dead. It's saying that he appeared to people. But do we have anything this early talking about Jesus' divinity? Saying that he's God. This doesn't say that. You bet we do. We do have that. Let me just give you two of the, uh, of the earliest, best examples, I think. One from 1 Corinthians and the other from Philippians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, Paul is counseling the Corinthians on whether or not to eat food sacrificed to idols. And this is what he says. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we exist through him. First Corinthians was written in the early 50s, but most agree Paul is quoting here a creedal tradition that dates even earlier than that. What is so incredible about this creed is it actually redefines the Jewish Shema from Deuteronomy 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. If you were going to pick just one verse from the Old Testament to demonstrate Monotheism to demonstrate that Jews believed in one God. This would be the verse. This would be the verse. But notice, 
The Shema has been restated in this creed to include the crucified man, Jesus. Now, he is the Lord in the, in the Shema, and God is God the Father. But, but Paul doesn't believe in two gods. Remember, he made it clear. For us, there is but one God. One God. Not there, there are two gods. So clearly, Paul somehow is including Jesus of Nazareth within the one God of Israel. He has split the Shema in some unique, fascinating way. Some have even called this Christological monotheism. I love that. The second one is from Philippians 2, 6 through 5 through 11. This is uh, known as possibly a poem, maybe even a hymn. But, but Paul's counseling the Philippians. He's saying, uh, let me tell you about the ultimate example of sacrifice and humility so I can, 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 can motivate you towards self-sacrifice and look, not looking out for your own interests, but looking out for the interests of others. And so he points to Christ as the ultimate example of this. And he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, this is where the poem begins, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. It could be, that word can be translated either way. But emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Bart's most recent book, he dates this, to the, this poem to the early 40s, but many even date it earlier. So here within the first decade, at least the first two decades of Christianity after Jesus' death, we have a complete Christology in condensed form. We have Jesus' pre-existence as the form of God, his incarnation as a human being, his taking the humble form of a slave and dying a slave's death, even the most shameful of deaths being nailed to a Roman cross. And he was raised and super exalted to the right hand of God. He possesses the divine name Yahweh. And all creation, visible and invisible, will bow down and worship him as the world's true Lord. I mean, is there a higher Christology than that? Does it get higher? The earliest Christology is the highest Christology. And I'm just scratching the surface here at how shocking this poem is in a monotheistic Jewish context. Whoever originally composed this poem is clearly alluding to Isaiah 45, verse 23, which alongside the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, is one of the most fiercely monotheistic passages in the entire Hebrew Bible. Yahweh in that section of Isaiah 40 through, through 55 is basically saying over and over again, there is no other God, I'm the only God, I alone created the heavens and the earth. Worship no other God. I know of no other God, no God was born before me or after me. And this is where he climaxes in this statement that's alluded to in that poem. Yahweh says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, Yahweh says, to me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. By the way, that first line, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Well, fun fact, the great Charles Spurgeon was converted by that verse. Jews had a clear dividing line between Almighty God, Yahweh, and everything else. There was the Creator, and there was creation. No matter how exalted some of God's creatures could be. How is it that within the first decade or two decades after Jesus' death, this crucified man is equal to Yahweh and falls on that Creator side of the line? Many Jewish so-called messiahs were killed and even some of them crucified in the time period of Jesus. 
But none of their disciples started proclaiming that their dead leader as Yahweh and the creator of the universe and worship him as Lord of the world. You know what they did when their leader was, was killed? They went out and got jobs. The last thing they would do is call him Yahweh. Where did these unparalleled radical ideas come from? For every effect, there has to be a sufficient cause. Jesus' resurrection is not sufficient to account for this. These radical ideas came from exalted claims by the historical Jesus himself. So my first point is that the reason why this crucified man Jesus was already within years of his death, being equaled with Yahweh himself, and worshipped is because Jesus himself made such claims while he was alive. You know, many of us are trying to get Bart to become a member of the Early High Christology Club. You even get a free mug. You get a free mug. Bart is almost a member. He is so close. Maybe he'll become initiated tonight. My second point is that Jesus made implicit claims to divinity during his public ministry. Let's take a look at some almost certain things we know about the historical Jesus. I, I, I love what Joachim Jeremias says, this great 20th century German historical Jesus scholar. He says, if we apply the critical resources at our disposal to study the historical Jesus with utmost discipline and conscientiousness, the final result will always be the same. We find ourselves confronted with God. Here are some signs of divine consciousness in Jesus. Implicit claims. First, his unique sonship. Jesus had a unique sense of sonship with the God of Israel. The God of Israel was Jesus' Abba, and Jesus referred to himself as his son. This type of language is unparalleled for a Jew to speak about God this way. The simple address of Abba. This type of, in fact, one of the most clear claims to sonship and unique relationship with the God of Israel comes from the earliest strata of Jesus' teachings. This, this uh, saying source we, uh, scholars call Q. It dates to probably the early 50s, and this is something Jesus said, quoted in both Matthew and Luke. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This is really an incredible statement by the historical Jesus. Notice he refers to himself three times as Son. He's the Son of the Father, but he's also the only one who reveals people to the Father. He chooses who will know the Father. Only he knows the Father, and only the Father knows him. Some have called this a meteorite fallen from the Johannine sky. I love that. You know what that means? The way Jesus talks in John, many critical scholars say, oh, Jesus didn't really talk like that. John invented that language and put that on his lips. That's John talking, not Jesus. Well, in the earliest strata of the sayings of Jesus, sounds like he talked like that. Sounds like he talked like he did John. It can hardly be questioned that Jesus thought of himself as, a, as son in an unparalleled relationship with the God of Israel, his Abba. The next, the kingdom of God had arrived in Jesus' ministry. He believed that. This is another saying that's almost certain to go back to the historical Jesus. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice what, it, what this teaches about what Jesus believed. He believed not only that he was the Spirit bearer casting out demons, but the kingdom prophesied in the Psalms and Isaiah and Daniel had begun in his ministry and in his actions. We also know that Jesus spoke with unparalleled authority. He said things like, Amen, I say to you. And you have heard that it was said, but now I say to you. In fact, this amen I say to you is really fascinating. It occurs 50 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, always on the lips of Jesus. It occurs 52 times in John, always on the lips of Jesus. It's unparalleled. No one talked like that except for Jesus. 
Many scholars have compared it to the way the Hebrew prophets of old introduced their saying. What would they say? Thus says the Lord. Thus says Yahweh. But you know how Jesus of Nazareth introduced his saying? Amen, I say to you. In fact, the great rabbinic scholar Jacob Neusner had this to say about the way Jesus talked. When I read that Jesus said things like, you have heard that it was said thus and so, but I say unto you this and this and this, I want to say to this Jesus, who do you think you are, God? Who do you think you are, God? That's a great question. These are all signs of divine consciousness, and there are so many more. But the most explicit claim to deity was Jesus' claim to be the Son of Man from Daniel 7 before Caiaphas, the night before he was crucified. This is my third and final point. This Son of Man figure, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, it comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel sees it in these night visions. He sees this Son of Man figure that's definitely divine. He rides the clouds, which only God does. He is given glory, and all peoples and nations worship him. And think about the context of Daniel. Nobody worships anyone in Daniel except God of Israel. But they worship the Son of Man. He is the king of God's eternal kingdom. This is an incredibly exalted figure. In fact, Bart Ehrman says in his book about, about the Son of Man figure, this is an exalted figure indeed, as exalted as one can possibly be without actually being the Lord God Almighty. But no human ever claimed to be the Son of Man until Jesus. And no, no human has claimed to be him since then. I don't know if anybody here wants to claim to be the Son of Man tonight. But Bart agrees that the historical Jesus did speak about the Son of Man. But instead of claiming to be the Son of Man, Bart believes Jesus is talking about another figure, a Son of Man that will come one day as the cosmic judge and bring God's kingdom. However, this view that Jesus believed a distinct Son of Man from himself was to come is almost certainly false. We have stronger evidence that Jesus used the Son of Man as a self-referent than just about anything else he said. It occurs 86 times in the New Testament, 81 times on the lips of Jesus. It seems to have been his favorite title for himself. Let me show you one of the problems that you encounter if you would say, like Bart, that the Son of Man was distinct from Jesus and not Jesus himself. Here's another Q saying that Bart would agree, I think most would agree, Jesus said. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The problem with Bart's view is that he also agrees Jesus believed himself to be the future Messiah who would sit on God's throne. He, said in, he says in his book, the disciples would sit on thrones as rulers in the coming kingdom, and Jesus would be seated on the greatest throne of all as the Messiah of God. But here's the problem when you think back to that saying. The Son of Man sits on his throne according to Jesus. The twelve disciples sit on their thrones. Where is Jesus' throne? I mean, you've got to think about it. You've got the Son of Man sitting on his throne. You've got the twelve disciples on their throne. There's Jesus without, without throne. I want Bart to answer that question of Jesus there. Where is his throne? I think the best way to make sense of that saying is if Jesus envisioned himself as seated on God's throne. There are many Son of Man sayings we could look at, but I want to focus on the Christological climax of all the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus' confession before the high priest Caiaphas that he was, the son, that he is the Son of Man. This is found in Mark 14. The high priest asks Jesus, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus here is uniting another incredible passage alongside the Son of Man passage. Psalm 110.1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is saying to Caiaphas, I am that son of man of Daniel 7. I am also the Lord of Psalm 110. And Caiaphas rightly said, Blasphemy. 
and he ripped his clothes and they sentenced him to death. And you know, Caiaphas was right, by the way. He was right. This was blasphemous, unless, of course, Jesus was telling the truth. Bart can't make sense of the blasphemy charge at the trial because of his presupposition that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of Man. Bart admits that if Jesus did claim to be the Son of Man, as Mark portrays in the account, in other words, if this account in Mark is historically accurate, then this would have been a divine claim and the blasphemy would be justified. Many critical scholars, such as Raymond Brown, disagree with Bart and believe this claim by Jesus and this account in Mark is historical. It makes sense if it's true. It makes perfect sense. I want to invite Bart to change his mind tonight and admit Jesus did, in fact, claim to be the Son of Man in the trial scene. Not only because I would win the debate, but also because it is historically true. In short, whether Jesus says to John, before Abraham was, I am, or he says to Caiaphas, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, he is claiming to be divine. He is saying in the language of the Hebrew Scriptures that he, Jesus, shares in the unique identity of the one God of Israel, his offer. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bass. Now let me introduce uh, Dr. Bart Ehrman. Dr. Bart Ehrman is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he has taught since 1988. Professor Ehrman has published extensively in the fields of New Testament and early Christianity. Having written or edited 30 books, including five New York Times bestsellers, Misquoting Jesus, God's Problem, Jesus Interrupted, Forged, and How Jesus Became God, his books have been translated into 27 languages. Professor Ehrman's work has been featured in Time, Newsweek, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, and other media outlets. His appeared on NBC's Dateline, CNN, The History Channel, National Geographic, The Discovery Channel, the BBC, major NPR shows, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and The Colbert Report, and other top media outlets. Please welcome with me, Dr. Bart Ehrman. I hope I say some things that make some of you think. 
it's, it's more important for me that you think about whatever it is you believe or don't believe. Um, I personally don't care if you are a rabid fundamentalist, a committed evangelical, a, a wide-eyed liberal Christian, or a crazy agnostic. Uh, I don't really care uh, what you are, or if you're Muslim, or Jewish, or Hindu, or Buddhist, I really don't care. What I do care is if you think about it. That um, if, if you have a reasoned position for your view, and that you don't simply accept the view that somebody else has fed you. And that you don't simply listen to people because they say things that you agree with. But that you're willing to disagree with what you learn in your home, from your parents, from your teachers, from your preacher, from your Sunday school teachers. That you are willing to disagree because you thought it through and you come to think, you know, I think I was wrong. That is a very painful thing to do. Uh, I myself have done it. I, uh, I applied myself to study at Dallas Theological Seminary back when I was a conservative evangelical Christian. Uh, I'm a graduate of Booty Bible Institute. The Bible is our middle name. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, I come from that world. I come from your world. Uh, I ended up changing my mind, not because uh, I wanted to be hard-hearted, or because I wanted to oppose God, or because uh, I just, uh, you know, just wanted to be mean-spirited. I changed my mind because I thought I was wrong. And it was emotionally very difficult. But it's what I think is right. So I'm not urging you to follow my path. Follow your own path. The question is, did Jesus... Did Jesus consider himself to be divine. Now, I'm, I'm in a real handicap here, handicap here, because it's quite clear that Jesus in the New Testament does declare himself divine. The clearest proof of that is John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus explicitly says, I am divine, you are the branches. <laughs> so I'm really up against it here, because there it is. <laughs> uh, did Jesus claim to be God? <laughs> right. How much time have I spent already? How much time have I wasted already? Okay. <laughs> okay. Let me start off by saying what we're not debating because I think it's very important for us to be on the same page. So what we're not debating before I get to what I think we are debating. We are not debating the question, is Jesus God? Uh, most of you think that he is God, and I'm not debating that. I'm not saying that Jesus was not God. My, my, I'm an agnostic. I personally don't believe Jesus was. But that's not what we're debating. Okay, just so you can understand. Secondly, we're not asking, did the writers of the Gospels think Jesus was God? I think the answer is yes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in different ways, thought that Jesus was God. But that's not what we're debating. We're debating, did Jesus claim to be God? We're also not debating, does Jesus claim to be God in the New Testament? We're not debating that. Because in the New Testament, Jesus does claim to be God. Uh, he doesn't claim to be God in any of the passages that Justin just mentioned. As you may have noticed, if you paid careful attention, 
Jesus, in none of those passages, does Jesus say, I am God. The first passages he mentioned were from the writings of the Apostle Paul, where Jesus was not speaking. Elsewhere, Jesus talked about being the Son of God. We're asking not that Jesus the Son of God. We're asking, did Jesus call himself God? He does in some places in the New Testament. Abraham, the, I'm sorry, John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. The Jews know perfectly well what he's saying. They take out stones to stone him to death. I am the Father, our one. John 10, 30. Unambiguous. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. He prays in John chapter 17, Father, glorify me with the glory that I have in your presence before the world existed. He is claiming to have pre-existed with God before the universe came into existence. You will note something about these four quotations, and I could add a couple more. All four of these come from the Gospel of John. Why don't I have any sayings from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, our earliest Gospels? Because Jesus does not make these claims in our earliest Gospels. Why is that? We're not debating whether Jesus claimed to be God in the New Testament. We're asking, did the historical Jesus himself, the man, who walked in Galilee and was crucified in Jerusalem, did he, during his lifetime, say that he was God? My view of this is not a weird view of a particularly liberal agnostic who happens to teach in Chapel Hill. It is that. <laughs> but it's not only that. The view that I'm going to set forth now is the view that is the dominant view among New Testament scholars throughout the known universe. That Jesus, the historical Jesus, the man, did not declare himself God. Now the fact that you know this is the kind of standard view among scholars doesn't make it right, it doesn't make it wrong, but it is the standard view. I just want you to realize this is just not one of my weird things. I, I can come out with a few of my weird things later if you want, but this isn't one of them. This is, this is standard stuff. Jesus does claim to be God in the New Testament, especially in God John. And so, doesn't that prove that Jesus claimed to be God? Well, I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a more of a direct refutation of what, to what Justice said when I uh, get around to the, to the rebuttals, because I didn't know what he was going to say, and so I, I didn't prepare a rebuttal. I'm going, to, I'm going to try and say some, some things directly about that. But what I want to point out, just as a preliminary to that, is that Justin did cite several verses from the New Testament where Jesus, for example, claimed to be the Son of God, or the Son of Man. But he didn't do what historians do when they approach the New Testament, which is establish that those verses actually were things that the historical Jesus said. If you believe that everything in the Gospels that is recorded on Jesus' lips is exactly what Jesus said, because you believe that God inspired the Bible, and so if the Bible says Jesus said something, then he really said it. If that's what you personally believe, then, then 
Nothing I say is going to change your mind. But that's not how historians go about establishing what the historical Jesus really said and did, and I need to spend the rest of my time explaining why. Why is it there are sayings in the Gospels that Jesus probably did not actually say? That's the issue. If, if Justin disagrees with that, then he's going to have to explain how it is that all of the sayings in the New Testament are historically exactly the things Jesus said. In other words, it, he can't if we're talking about the historical Jesus, we're not talking about what he personally believes about Jesus. We're not talking about his theology. We're not talking about his religious belief. We're talking about history. How do you establish what somebody in the past actually said on historical grounds? If you can't establish something as Jesus actually having said it, then you don't know whether he said it or not. Let me explain more fully. The Gospels as historical sources. The Gospels are certainly expressions of the faith of the early Christian authors. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were writing down their views of Jesus. They are expressions of faith that are valuable for people of faith today. Of course, the Gospels are where you turn to understand who Jesus was, what he meant, and what he means for you. They are expressions that are valuable for your faith. But that doesn't make them historically accurate. The Gospels is history. Let me talk about how historians go about establishing what really happened in the past. If historians have ancient sources, how do they know if those sources are reliable? This is the same question that we have today. Whenever you read an account in the newspaper, you have to ask, not is it in the newspaper, but is it reliable or not? What do, ancient, what do ancient historians want when it comes to ancient sources? They want sources that are numerous. If you've got stories about Alexander the Great, or about Julius Caesar, or about Caesar Augustus, or about anyone else from the ancient world, or from the Middle Ages, or from the Renaissance, you want numerous sources. You want sources that are close to the time in which the events took place. You want sources that are consistent with one another. You want sources that corroborate one another, that, that say basically the same thing, and yet they say these things without having collaborated with one another. If you're a historian, this is your wish list. Suppose you want to write a biography of Alexander the Great. You want a lot of sources that are near his time, that are basically consistent with one another, that agree on how they present Alexander the Great and what he said and what he did without having borrowed this information from each other. That's what you want as a historian. You want that for Alexander the Great, you want it for Julius Caesar, and you want it for Jesus. If you're approaching the New Testament as a historian, you have to bracket your personal theological beliefs. You have to, have to approach it the way historians approach sources. In the New Testament, we do have numerous sources. We've got four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But these sources are problematic for historians. I'm not saying that they're problematic for believers. I'm not saying you shouldn't base your lives on the teachings of Jesus found in the New Testament. I'm saying if you want to know what Jesus really said and did, these sources are problematic. Let me explain why. If we're looking for those kinds of sources, what do we have in the New Testament? First, the dates of the Gospels. Uh, Justin, uh, 
Sounds like we agree pretty much that the Gospels are written decades after the life of Jesus. I date the Gospels between 70 and 90 uh, AD. Uh, Justin is dating them between 60 and 90. Fine. Uh, Jesus died died around the year 30. That means the Gospels were written 30 to 60 years later. They are our earliest sources. The first account of Jesus' words comes to us from a source written 30, 40, 50 years later. Well, who wrote these books? Weren't they eyewitnesses? The authors of the New Testament Gospels do not claim to be eyewitnesses. They don't claim to be people named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are written anonymously. They are not written in Jesus' native language, Aramaic. They're written in another language, Greek. They were not written by lower-class fishermen and other peasants. They were written by highly educated, Greek-speaking people living 40, 50 years later who were living in other parts of the world. Where did they get their information from? They don't tell us. Luke indicates that people have passed on this information from the time there were eyewitnesses, but what are his specific sources? He doesn't tell us. Mark doesn't tell us. Matthew doesn't tell us. John doesn't tell us. What scholars have long thought is that these stories have come down to the gospel writers by word of mouth. There weren't gospels floating around a year after Jesus died, or two years later, or five years later, or 20 years later. It was 40 years later. That's when they were first written. Well, where did they get the stories from? From word of mouth. People told stories about Jesus. Jesus died, and people started telling stories about him. One person told another, who told another, who told another, who told another. You know what happens to stories when they get told by word of mouth? Have you ever had stories told about you told by word of mouth? Are they always historically accurate? Oh yeah, but they wouldn't have changed anything. They wouldn't have changed anything? Why wouldn't they have changed anything? Did they think these stories were going to show up in the Bible someday? They were just telling stories about Jesus. Stories change over time. And they especially change in societies that don't have written records. We sometimes hear that in oral cultures, people preserve traditions accurately. That's absolutely wrong. As any cultural anthropologist who has studied oral cultures will tell you, in oral cultures, stories change all the time because it's important to change the story for your audience and for the needs at hand and for what you think is most important. People are changing the stories year after year, decade after decade, before anybody writes them down. That's one of the reasons there are so many discrepancies in our, in our surviving Gospels. The discrepancies of the Gospels show us that stories have been changed over the years. Let me say something about the discrepancies of our Gospels. And I should just say up front, this is what convinced me that my views about the Bible were wrong when I was, a, when I was in my 20s. When I was diligently studying uh, the uh, New Testament Gospels in the original Greek, I started finding discrepancies. I knew people had said that. I didn't believe it because it was just a bunch of liberals saying these things. So I didn't believe them. But then I started studying. I started realizing there are discrepancies. And once you realize it there, you start finding them. Lots of them. 
There are important differences among our Gospels that cannot be reconciled with one another. You don't have to take my word for this. Simply read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John next to each other. The problem is when we read the New Testament, we tend to read all of Matthew. We go from the beginning to the end. It's about the life and death of Jesus. And all, okay, it's the gospel, life and death of Jesus. Then you read Mark, and it sounds like Matthew, life and death of Jesus. Then you go to Luke, it sounds like Matthew and Mark, life and death of Jesus. Then you John, that's a little different, but it's basically the life and death of Jesus. And so it all sounds the same because you're reading them from top to bottom. The way to see that these gospels are different from each other is not to read them from top to bottom, it's to read them across each other. Read a story in Matthew, then the same story in Mark, and the same story in Luke, and compare them in detail. Do it with the resurrection narratives. Just read for yourself the resurrection narratives and ask yourself, can you reconcile these Gospels? Who goes to the tomb? Okay, some women. Is it one woman or several women? If it's several women, which are their, what are their names? It depends which Gospel you read. What do they see there? Do they see a man there, or two men there, or do they see an angel there? Depends which, which gospel you read. Was the stone already rolled away from the tomb before they got there, or after they got there? Depends which gospel that you read. What are they told to do? Are they supposed to go tell the disciples that they're to meet Jesus in Galilee, or are they to go tell the disciples that Jesus is going to show up, show up to them uh, where they are in Jerusalem? Depends which gospel you read. Do the women tell anybody? In one gospel, they don't tell anybody. In the others, they go tell. Do the disciples go to Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem to meet with Jesus, or do they go to, to Galilee to meet with Jesus? They might say, well, they did all of it. No. Read them carefully. Matthew's gospel is unambiguous. The disciples immediately go to Galilee, a hundred miles away, and that's where they meet Jesus. Luke is explicit. The disciples never leave Jerusalem for over a month where they see Jesus. Unambiguous. These are rather important differences. Some of the discrepancies among our Gospels are, uh, are discrepancies written small. What day did Jesus die? Did Jesus die the afternoon before the Jewish Passover was eaten? Or did he live through that day and eat the Passover meal and die the next morning? It depends if you want to follow John or Mark, because they both are explicit when Jesus died, and they disagree. Well, that's a little detail. Who cares which day he died? What matters is he died, right? Yes, if you're a believer, that's what matters. He died. But I'm asking, are the Gospels historically accurate? Sometimes the discrepancies are writ large, such as Jesus' teachings about himself. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does not go around declaring who he is. What Jesus principally teaches about himself in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that he has to go to Jerusalem and be rejected by the scribes and elders and be crucified and then raised from the dead. He has to suffer and die and be raised. That's what he teaches about himself. What about the Gospel of John? Whereas Jesus does not say very much at all about himself in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Gospel of John, virtually all he talks about is who he is. He is the one who has come from heaven. He is the one who has come from God. He is the way to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. 
He is the resurrection and the life. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. Jesus says, I am all of these things. I am, I am, I am, I am in the Gospel of John. That is, that is incredibly different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What is the payoff for historians? Because our Gospels have so many discrepancies, because they're written 40, 50, 60 years after the events they narrate by people who were not eyewitnesses and probably did not know eyewitnesses, who don't claim to be eyewitnesses, who don't claim to know eyewitnesses, they're written by people living at a different time, in a different country, speaking a different language, who have heard stories about Jesus that have been passed around by word of mouth year after year and decade after decade. Because of that, historians do not think that the Gospels can simply be quoted if you want to know what historically happened in the life of Jesus. It isn't good enough simply to quote verse after verse and say, see, Jesus said that. See, Jesus said that. Did Jesus say that particular thing or not? How do you know? Historians have to apply rigorous historical criteria in order to know. Our most reliable sources are usually thought to be our earliest sources. So, for example, the Gospel of Mark. It's not perfectly reliable, but it's 30 years earlier than the Gospel of John. It's probably more reliable than the Gospel of John. But you simply can't take Mark and what Mark has to say, or what Q has to say, or what Matthew has to say, and assume that that's what Jesus actually said. You have to show it on historical grounds. Jesus makes exalted claims for himself in the Gospel of John. There he doesn't simply claim to be the Son of God. He doesn't claim just to be the Son of Man. He claims to be equal with God. He does not make those claims in our earliest Gospels or in the sources of our earliest Gospels. Why is that? If Jesus really called himself God, wouldn't that be widely known? Wouldn't Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Q, and the sources behind Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Q have known about it? If they knew about it, how in the world could they fail to tell us? Matthew, Mark, and Luke want to write stories about what Jesus said, and they neglect to mention that he called himself God? How could they just leave that part out if they knew about it? They probably didn't know about it. They didn't know about it because the historical Jesus did not call himself God. Thank you. Dr. Chairman, I'm sorry for the technical difficulty at the beginning of your presentation. I did add a minute and a half of your time in interest of fairness. Now we move on to the rebuttal phase. We will start with Dr. Bass, and immediately after Dr. Bass's rebuttal, Dr. Ehrman will take the podium for his 10-minute rebuttal. Well, I'm great to have a lot of believers here, but I'm disappointed that we don't have here now. 
<laughs> I think it's this apostacon or some hidden teller magic show. I kept telling all my weaver friends, I said, you want magic tricks or buy them? I just want to give you a summary of my opening speech, my key arguments, just to remind you what, I, what I'm arguing tonight. First, the earliest writings we have about Jesus, a poem and creeds quoted in Paul's early letters, proclaim him as God. Just as Bart just said, he, he, he talked about that as that's not a big deal, but just like he said, wouldn't that be everywhere? Shouldn't we see that? Well, that's exactly what we see from the earliest writings and traditions we have. From within the first decade of Jesus' death, we have people equating him. His followers are equating him in a radically monotheistic Jewish context as, as Yahweh, as one with God, as redefining the Shema, as saying, we worship him. I mean, you need to read Larry Hurtado on this. He has made clear that this is unprecedented, the way Jesus was worshipped and how fast he was worshipped. It's a mutation, was his word. It's a great word. It's a mutation within uh, Jewish monotheism in the first century. Really radical for them to worship Jesus. He's right. Jesus isn't claiming to be God in those evidences, but I'm, I'm just showing that if he did claim to be God, it makes sense that his earliest followers would proclaim him as God, and that's exactly what they do, and that's the argument. The second thing is Jesus made implicit claims that he is divine during his public ministry. Yes, John Meyer, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of our time, has said Jesus almost made a riddle about himself. There, there is no doubt that the way Jesus presented himself, it was not clear. He, he wants to present Jesus as going around saying he's God in the Gospel of John, but that's not true either. Jesus never said, Ego emi ha theos, not even in John. To those who have ears to hear But Jesus never claimed to be God, the word God. In Greek, the word God is ha theos. Jesus never says, I'm ha theos. He never says that. He says it even in John in cryptic ways. He quoted the only passages where he does that. Because even in John, he's constantly saying, I came to reveal the Father. He's constantly pointing away from himself and pointing to the Father. But in climactic moments, which in John, he's in Jerusalem a lot more. In John, most of the time, Jesus' ministry is in Jerusalem. In the synoptics, most of his ministry is in Galilee and, and in the Decapolis and things like that. So it makes sense that maybe in Jerusalem, he did make more exalted claims about himself. Interestingly, in the synoptics, the highest claim Jesus makes is in Jerusalem, and it's the night before he's crucified. So it's almost like Jesus had this riddle about himself throughout his whole ministry. I mean, we see it in the Gospels. What are they saying? Who is this? Who is this that can command the wind and the waves? Who is this? And it seems like he solved it on that trial scene, the night before he's crucified. And Bart wants to try to say that, oh, this is, this is uh, you know, the majority of scholars, the dominant view of scholars, is that Jesus didn't claim to be God. Well, if he claimed to be the Son of Man, that is not true. I could give you a long list of scholars that Bart himself greatly respects. In fact, he says in his book that Raymond Brown, the late great Raymond Brown, and I agree with him, is probably the greatest New Testament scholar in the, in the second half of the 20th century. He says this in Jesus, How Jesus Became God. Guess what? Raymond Brown said that that uh, scene in Mark 14 is historical. And Jesus did claim to be God. And he's not the only one, but let me read you what he said. He said, Jesus could have spoken of the Son of Man as his understanding of his role in God's plan, precisely when he was faced with hostile challenges reflecting the expectations of his contemporaries. Inevitably, the Christian record would have crossed the T's and dotted the I's of the scriptural background of his words. Even though all of Mark 14, 
sorry, even though all of Mark 14, 61 through 62 in parallels is phrased in Christian language of the 60s, language not unrelated to 80, 30, and 33. So he agrees. Yeah, Mark's colored this thing. This, this isn't a verbatim-like account, a verbatim account. We would all agree with that. But then he says, there is reason to believe that in 1462, we may be close to the mindset and style of Jesus. So the question is, is did the historical Jesus actually make this claim to be the Son of Man? If he did, Mark agrees, it was blasphemy. And this was a claim of divinity. This was a claim that he was in some sense equal with God Almighty. This is true of the way some, the Son of Man is pictured in Second Temple Judaism. In First Enoch, he sits on the throne, he's worshipped, but all this goes back to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, you have this Son of Man figure flying on the clouds. Only God does that. He is worshipped. He reigns over God's kingdom. Who is this Son of Man? He is in, you have the Ancient of Days, and you have the Son of Man. This fits with what Paul is doing. Paul probably looked at things like this, and that's how he could put Jesus within the one God. That's why he could say the Shema, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and see the Lord as Jesus and God as God the Father. So if Jesus claimed to be Son of Man, as I said, he claimed to be the Son of Man 81 times. 81 times. So he, he laid out all the sources, he laid out all the historical investigation. Hey, I, I'm disappointed he didn't see how much how hard I worked to saying that fit that criteria because I did and the son of man passes all his criteria with flying colors it's in Q it's in M it's in L it's in Mark it's in John it has uh, it passes the criteria of dissimilarity no one talked about the son of man suffering and dying no one talked about um, no one after Jesus claimed Jesus was the son of man that's not a title that the early church used so why does it occur 81 times on the lips of Jesus where does it come from? It's a fascinating claim. It's the way Jesus proclaims himself, and it was unique, and it was there was a riddle, it was a cipher, but ultimately he made it clear at that in that trial scene, I am the Son of Man, and I am the Lord of Psalm 110. This is the way you call yourself God in the Jewish sense, in the, in a radical monotheistic context, and that's exactly how Jesus claimed to be God in the synopsis. So, uh, I think uh, in Justin's rebuttal, he was more or less reasserting his earlier points uh, rather than uh, addressing what I, what I argued. And so, uh, I, just want, I want to note that, that uh, some of the issues that I read, all the issues I read, uh, he, uh, he chose not to address. But we're going to have more time to address these things. And so, uh, we, can, uh, we can do that during the um, back and forth we're going to have. And uh, you all are going to be able to ask uh, ask questions uh, of both of us. Um, I just asked when you ask me a question, you make it a softball. Um, so uh, let me. I do want to address the things uh, Justin said in his uh, in her in his first talk. His first point that he spent probably maybe half of his time on was that early Christian authors uh, called Jesus divine, and uh, I completely agree with that. Uh, and it has no bearing on the question. Uh, because the question is not whether Paul thought Jesus was divine, or whether John thought Jesus was divine, or whether Mark thought Jesus was divine. The question is whether did Jesus call himself divine. And so quoting Philippians 2, or 1 Corinthians 8, or any other passage is not relevant to that, to that question. 
Um, he does want to focus a lot on the Son of Man issue. The Son of Man issue, I don't know if you all are picking up on this, uh, the Son of Man issue is one of the thorniest issues that New Testament scholars have had to deal with for over, over 150 years. Uh, New Testament scholars, many of whom are among the brightest human beings who've ever walked the planet, have tried to figure out the Son of Man issue in the New Testament. And I can just tell you, to put it in simple terms, it ain't easy. Uh, the Son of Man sayings on Jesus' lips in the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, that's where principally you get the Son of Man saying, are really complicated. Uh, and I'm debating whether to try and explain the complications or whether it's just going to take us down some kind of muddy road that we don't want to go down. But, uh, well, why not? So, um, <laughs> there, are, there are three kinds of sayings in the Son of Man. I'm watching your time. No, that's okay. You can have that one. Uh, uh, there are three kinds of Son of Man sayings in the New Testament on the lips of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus uh, clearly talks about himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. Uh, foxes have lairs, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Uh, that's, that's not claiming to be God, that's just, that's just a way of saying me, somebody I. You know, the Son of Man, some, a, a lot of scholars, of course Jesus was speaking Aramaic, and some of the best scholars of Aramaic, uh, the Aramaic uh, language of Jesus' day, think the Son of Man was a circumlocution for the word I. Now, it's just a way of talking about yourself. You know, just like when the queen says, you know, we are not amused, uh, she doesn't mean we, she means I. <laughs> I am not amused. Well, son of man was a way in Aramaic to talk about it. So that's, there's no, no claim to be God there. Uh, sometimes Jesus talked about the son of man going to suffer. The son of man would go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. Uh, so the son of man suffering sayings. There are some sayings of Jesus is the son of man, where Jesus talks about a figure who's coming from heaven to judge the earth. Those are the ones that Justin is referring to. Uh, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in the presence of the holy angels. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of that one the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes on the clouds of heaven. There, Jesus is talking about a future cosmic judge of the earth who comes from heaven. He seems to be a divine head figure because he comes from heaven. Scholars have to decide which sayings of Jesus go back to him. This is a point, again, that Justin hasn't dealt with. Which of the saints of Jesus go back to him? Given the fact that they probably all don't go back to him. And you have to decide about the Son of Man sayings. Did Jesus call himself the Son of Man? The striking thing is that in the first two kinds of sayings, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, the Son of Man must be rejected and crucified, Jesus is talking about himself. But when you look at the Son of Man sayings of the Son of Man who's coming on the clouds of heaven, there is nothing to suggest he's talking about himself. You say, well, if he's talking about himself in the other two, then he's talking about himself there, right? Wrong. Each of these sayings circulated independently of one another, and you have to figure out which ones originally came from Jesus' lips. You can't simply guess, and you can't simply go with the ones that you like. You have to apply rigorous historical criteria, and one of the criteria that scholars apply is that if there's a saying of Jesus that seems to be something that the early Christians would not have put on his lips, then that's something he probably said. That's something Christians didn't put on his lips. 
The early Christians thought Jesus was the Son of Man. They worshipped him as the Son of Man. If you have Jesus calling himself the Son of Man, could Christians have put that on his lips? Of course they could have. If Jesus talks about the Son of Man in a way that is not obviously about himself, would they have put that on his lips? No, probably not. So, when Jesus talks about the coming Son of Man, and he isn't obviously talking about himself, in fact, he gives some indication he's not talking about himself, as in Mark 8, 38, they wouldn't put those on his lips, which means those are the sayings he made, and they're the ones where he doesn't identify himself as the Son of Man. Mark 14, 62, that Justin wants to keep talking about, Jesus is talking to the high priest. Who is there in this scene? Just read the account. Mark chapter 14. It's the Jewish council and Jesus. Were any of Jesus' followers there taking notes? No. Who was there? Jesus and his Jewish opponents. How does Mark know what Jesus said? He didn't get it from Jesus. He didn't get it from any of the followers who were there. Did Caiaphas start giving interviews to Christian interviewers? How does Mark... Well, it's pretty obvious to historians what's going on here. What's going on here is what's going on in every ancient history we have from the ancient world. When a historian is trying to write a speech of something someone said, and the historian wasn't there to hear it, the historians tell us what they did. They made it up. We have evidence of this going back to Thucydides, the great Greek historian in the 5th century, who tells us that he wasn't there for these speeches. He made them up. He made up what he thought would be appropriate for the occasion. How does Mark know what Jesus said to the high priest? He doesn't know. He made it up to fit the occasion. You can't use that to say that the historical Jesus talked about the Son of Man as himself. Yes, Jesus does talk about himself as the divine Son, as do lots of people in the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, the son of David, Solomon, God through Nathan tells David, he will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. Solomon is the son of God. Psalm 2, where God says to the king of Israel, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The son of God was the king of Israel. Or sometimes it was Israel. Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Talking about the Exodus. Israel is the son of God. Does that make Israel God? Of course not. Was Solomon God? Of course not. He's the son. So is Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God. Yes, Jesus thought that he had special authority from God to speak his word. Jesus believed that God had inspired him to speak his word. That doesn't make him God. Jesus says that he exercises demons by the Spirit of God. Did you notice the quotation? Justin put it up for you. How does Jesus cast out demons? By the Spirit of God. God empowers Jesus. Jesus understood himself to be empowered by God because he was in a special relationship with God. But he doesn't claim to be God. This is a very big problem. 
In the Gospel of John, Jesus does call himself God. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he does not. They are our earliest sources. Behind them lie the documents that, that uh, Justin referred to. Q, M, and L. If you know your New Testament studies, you'll know what I'm talking about. They're the sources behind Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In those earlier sources, Jesus does not call himself God. If Jesus really went around Galilee and Jerusalem calling himself God, wouldn't somebody want to write that down? Why does John call him God? Because John, living 60 years later, understood Jesus as God. He believed Jesus as God. He had faith in Jesus as God. And so he put sayings of Jesus as God on Jesus' lips. That's what historians did. Thank you. Getting your seats, let me explain the next portion of our debate. This is a cross-examined phase. We will have a 40-minute cross-examination. The first 20 minutes, Dr. Bass would essentially be questioning Dr. Ehrman, directing the questions, and this will be a lively exchange. It's almost like they're sitting around a cup of coffee, two scholars, you know, and we're in the we have the great opportunity just listening in. So the first 20 minutes, Dr. Bass will direct questions toward Dr. Airman, and then after 20 minutes, I will direct Dr. Airman to go ahead and take the, take the opportunity to direct any questions he can towards Dr. Bass, and then we'll have another break, and then we'll move into our Q&A from the audience. Okay, start. Uh, first question. If we switch places, thinking about Last night we had a great dinner, and our waitress, we asked her who she thought was arguing which point, she thought the part was playing, was arguing that Jesus did claim to be God, and she thought I was arguing. So, so let's, let's say our waitress was correct. She had to work tonight, so she could come. But let's say our waitress was correct, and you were arguing from, as a, from a historical basis that the man Jesus did claim to be God, with all your knowledge of the sources. What would be your best argument if you were going to play that that? Uh, Hold on. Is this working? Can you hear me in the back, okay? Yeah, we heard some people. Can you hear me? I think you can hear me. Did you hear that? I said, can you hear me in the back? And someone said, no. <laughs> right, okay. Okay, yes, right. Okay, you hear me now? Did, did you hear anything I said during my talk? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, okay. Uh, right. What was the question? Uh, right. Uh, you know what the question is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, what would I argue? I mean, what I, I can tell you what, what I used to think was that, um, I mean, what I used to think is that the Gospel of John preserves historically accurate information. And so, I, apart from that, I can't think of a good argument because. I don't think, I mean, from a historical point of view, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I mean, it's just quite clear. Jesus did not make these claims. And so I, I think I would have to argue that John is a historically reliable document. I'll get back to this one. Okay. I want to climax, just like Mark does. Yeah, that's right. I want to climax. climax that would be good. Um, let's go back to the, uh, my, my, my first argument about the fact that 
we have such early, the earliest witnesses that we have to claim Jesus as God. And you, you and I agree with that, Philippians and things like that. You said, if did Jesus exist, there are no grounds for assuming that Paul, whose views of Jesus were taken over from the Palestinian Jewish Christians who preceded him, held a radically different view of Jesus from his president. And so I, I just am curious, I mean, if we can establish that Paul believes that Jesus is one within the Shema, he is one with God, he is the creator of the universe, through him all things were made, if we can establish that Paul believed Jesus was one with, the, with the, the God of Israel. And we can also know, just as you said, this then would probably, it would be pretty crazy if Paul was saying this about Jesus and Peter and James and those guys weren't saying it. So if Jesus' original disciples were making also these things, it's just one step away. Where did they get these ideas? Because you agree that this is unparalleled. There, there, there is no Jewish man proclaimed that equals Yahweh, worship in the way Jesus so this has to come from somewhere. Uh, there, I think that's where the force of the argument that Jesus didn't make. No, 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 it's irrelevant. The, if, if Jesus' disciples said he was God, that's not the question. The question, did Jesus say he was God? So, uh, as you know, I mean, you've read my book. I mean, in my book I talk about this, that, that the disciples of Jesus, after his resurrection, came to believe that he was uh, exalted. Okay, I, I haven't done this in my talk, so I need to do it now. And, so, uh, sorry if this eats into your 20 minutes, but you asked the question. So, uh, I'll take away. All right, so here's the deal. Um, it is absolutely right. Paul thought that Jesus was a divine being. Um, so, where did the idea come from? Um, Paul didn't invent the idea. Paul's predecessors thought Jesus was a divine being. Where did they get the idea from? They didn't get it from Jesus, because Jesus didn't say such things. So where did they get it from? I can tell you where they got it from. This is how it works. In the ancient world, there were a number of people, human beings, who were thought to be gods. There are three ways that a human being could at the same time have been divine. First way, sometimes a human being is so virtuous, or so righteous, or so beautiful, or so powerful, that at the end of their lives, God takes them up to heaven and they become a god. You get this in all sorts of Greek and Roman mythology. Uh, Romulus, the founder of Rome, became a god. Julius Caesar became a god. There, uh, Apollonius Tiana became a god. There were human beings who were exalted, this is just what people thought happened to particular people. Second way, sometimes a divine being, one of the gods, would look upon a mortal woman and decide to have sex with her, would come down and have sex with her. The offspring would be both human and divine. You get this in, um, you get both of these, by the way, in Jewish texts too. There are Jewish texts that talk about humans becoming God. And there are Jewish texts that talk about divine beings, angels, coming down and having sex with women, and the offspring are also sons of God. But you certainly get it in non-Jewish texts. Third way, sometimes a divine being will become a human, such as when the God wants to give a, have sex with a woman, he'll come down in a human form. And so sometimes a human is exalted to become God, and from then on is God. Sometimes a God will become human, temporarily, and sometimes a God is a human 
mate, leading to a person being both human and divine. That's how you get it. Before Christianity, throughout the world, there are people who think this. What happened with Jesus is, Jesus' followers came to think that he was raised from the dead. When Jesus got crucified, sometime later, the New Testament says three days later, I don't know if it's three days later, three weeks later, at some point, soon afterwards, his followers thought that he got raised from the dead. But they didn't think he got raised from the dead in the sense that it was a near-death experience and that he had come back to life to, to die again later. They thought the original belief of Christians was that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was taken up to heaven. There wasn't a difference between the resurrection and the ascension in the earliest Christian thinking. The ascension idea came much later. The earliest idea is that the resurrection, God exalted him to his right hand. What did ancient people think about a human being who was exalted to heaven? They thought that that person had been made divine. That's what you get in Jewish texts. It's what you get in non-Jewish texts, Roman texts, Greek texts, Egyptian texts. That's what you get. The Christians thought that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand. And so what did they conclude? Jesus has been made divine. From that on, they worshiped him as a divine being. That's where it came from. Name one other figure other than Jesus in the Jewish or pagan context that's said to be creator of the universe, that's said to be equal with Yahweh, the one God of Israel, that's said to, and that's worshiped with the intensity. Sophia. Sophia. Sophia was said to be equal with Yahweh, the God of Israel? Yeah. Did you say that? You know, Paul, by the way, doesn't say that Jesus is equal with God of Israel. Well, he calls him Yahweh. So he is definitely not Yahweh or any author of the New Testament. Yahweh and Jesus are different beings in the New Testament. What, what's the latter half of the Philippians poem say? He's honored. He's, a, he's put at a position with Yahweh. That doesn't make him Yahweh. He is definitely not Yahweh. Okay, so Romans 10, when he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, what's Paul quoting What's Paul quoting? Paul thought Jesus was the Lord, yes. And the Lord is... Look, in, in, in if you think that God. Jesus was Yahweh, you've committed the heresy called Sabellianism. No, no, no. Which was a third century heresy no, no. that said that Jesus and Yahweh were the same being. It was condemned as a heresy in early Christianity, and it continues to be condemned by heresy by every Orthodox Christian on the planet. No, the, the reason why it's not heresy is because Elohim, Jesus is not within his Elohim, so he's going to say book Hebrews. But Jesus, whenever an Old Testament concept is being quoted, verse in the Old Testament is being quoted that has Yahweh in the, in the text, it applies to Jesus. Because All God has given him the name above every name. Okay, so, so God has given him a position equal with himself, but he hasn't made him into Yahweh. Yahweh and Christ cannot be the same being in any theological understanding of the New Testament or later theological developments. They are distinct beings. That's the whole point of the Trinity. They're not the same. I think they're misunderstanding how the New Testament writers are using the Old Testament text. They're looking at, when they looked at Yahweh from the Old Testament, they were seeing the pre-existence. Christ. No, yeah. no, they were seeing the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, look. No, that's, that's what 1 Corinthians 8.6 is all about. It is the Shema. In the Shema, what is that? Okay, quote 8.6 for Quote 1 Corinthians 8.6 for There is but one God, the Father. There's God the Father. Right. And? 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 There's one Lord. There's one Lord. Yes. And, and 
what's that? Is that the Shema? Is, is and it's not that they are the same, because there's two of them. Two verses. Part two verses before that, Paul said, there is for us but one God. And one Lord. No, 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 no. No. In, in chapter 8, verse 4, he says, All right, look, if you God. want to say that Jesus is Yahweh, that's fine. I'm just telling I, you, it's condemned as an early heresy. That's what Paul says. But Paul does I, I not say that Jesus is Yahweh. Romans 10, 13, he says, whoever calls the name of the Lord, and he's clearly talking about Jesus, that's quoting Joel 10, 32. In Joel, it is Yahweh. who's there. They're saying, call him the name of the Lord. You show me a place where Paul says Jesus is Yahweh. Well, okay. But we can do um, I think that's one of the points, too, that, that when we you give these other examples, maybe uh, whoever Sophia is, and you're, you're throwing out these other examples, we're talking about the radically monotheistic Jewish context, which you've agreed, it, that, that runs in the background of the New Testament. And the question yeah. is, Paul, was Paul someone who would worship many gods as a Pharisaic Jew? No, 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 he worshiped the God of Israel. Right. So there, there are lots of Jews, Jewish texts that talk about uh, other human beings who become God. Not equal to God, no. Yeah, actually. Yeah. No, no, you no, mentioned no. first Enoch earlier, actually. Yeah, well, well, son of man. God. Yeah, so, yeah. He, who is the son of man in Enoch? Based on back in uh, first no, no, in Enoch, who is who is the son of man identified with? Oh, he's identified as Enoch. He's identified as Enoch, yes. the man Enoch. And when did Enoch? And live? all the angels fall down and worship him. When did Enoch live? When did he? The Jews, he was pretty far away. So Jesus was a man who lived in 2000 years ago. He was a man who walked. Well, Enoch went from Jews. Enoch was a man who walked. I mean, Enoch was a man. Thousands of years before, I'm saying that Jesus was a contemporary of them that they were saying crucified man is equal to God. That's what you mean. And that's what Larry Yes, that is. Yes. yes. And it has no bearing on whether Jesus called himself God. You could actually take your lapel. Your, when you talk to Dr. Herman, you're, you're facing your lapel. Okay. There you go. This way. This way. Okay, let's move to... So let's talk about that Q saying in uh, Matthew 11 and uh, Luke. So... Jesus refers to himself as the Son three times. Is that in the first person or the third person? Uh, so, I feel like I'm in the Bible trivia contest again back when I was a kid. <laughs> I, I want to make the point that because you make a big point about the Son of Man, that just because Jesus refers to the Son of Man as the third person, oh, clearly Jesus is talking about himself, but he refers to himself oh, as no, the three. Son. Three times. Oh yeah, no, no. Say. Jesus, Jesus so, does refer to himself as the Son of okay. Yes. So, so that sounds maybe this is the way Jesus talks, and so he refers to himself in the same way he refers to himself as the Son. He refers to himself. As the I don't man. think I don't think the Q saying goes back to Jesus. Oh, you don't think that Q saying goes back? To Jesus? No. On what basis? Look, do we need to talk about the criterion of historical uh, of criterion of dissimilarity? I mean, if you don't accept it, that's fine. Justin and I know what we're talking about here, but to explain it. I mean, <laughs> but but you would agree that very it doesn't pass a criterion of dissimilarity. No, it doesn't. <laughs> but many critical scholars accept this view saying as something Jesus said. That this is not a fundamental. Many critical scholars thing. like hello. This is this is a, this is a saying that majority of, right. majority of critical scholars would Sorry, accept no. as Jesus saying. What about First Corinthians eleven twenty three through twenty six when? Paul is quoting Jesus is saying, the longest quote of Jesus is saying, at the Lord's Supper, right? He's yes. sitting at the Lord's Supper. Yes. Now that saying, when would you, when would you say that we could, how, how early could we 
go back to the three. You're referring to at the Last Supper. Uh, Jesus said, that, that, you know, this is my body. This is my body. This, this is my blood. That's saying, yeah. Uh, well, Paul says he inherited it from uh, Christians before him. So, so that, that would be the, the earliest saying of Jesus we have in the New Testament. Would you agree? Would that be? Well, I don't know. Paul quotes a couple of other sayings of Jesus. Um, no, that's not that long. Not, not that. Not as long. That's no, the longest no. thing is Jesus. No, you, yeah. you weren't asking the longest, you were asking what was the earliest. Okay, okay. Well, yeah. it, it's very, it's, it's one of the earliest things we have. Yeah, yeah, it's no, very early. It's, yeah. mul it's multiply assessment. We have, yes. we have it Mark, Luke, okay. And what what is Jesus doing? He, he's suddenly talking about his Passover, which had been celebrated for 1,500 years, 800 years, depending on how. Do you the passage? We're talking about 1 Corinthians 11, where Jesus says, this is my body, and this is my blood. And so, Lord's Supper. So, clearly, Jesus is changing the Lord's Supper, or changing the Passover meal. He's, he's saying, stop thinking about the bread this way, and think about it as my body. Stop thinking about the wine this way, and think about my blood. And he also says, the new covenant being inaugurated. So, yes. this gives you, I think... And he doesn't. And the, to deny this saying, you'd have to deny just about anything he said. It passes. No, no. Well, no, it doesn't pass crazy criterion. It doesn't at all pass the criterion of dissimilarity. It's some of the early How could it possibly pass the criterion of dissimilarity? Yeah. But, but what I'm saying is. Well, that's not. It's the main criterion. Well, that, that's not the only criterion. No, but you said it passes. You said it passes all the criteria. And I'm telling you, the most important criteria doesn't pass. Two of the, uh, the key criteria: multiple attestation and early, very early. This saying uh, passes. And That's right. This shows us a lot about the mindset of Jesus. He looked at his life. Not only is he reinstituting the Passover meal, he's changing it to be about. Him. I mean, this is at least bare minimum an implicit claim of something. It's not something far more than you. Who does that? Who reinstitutes and says, "Don't think about this about the Exodus anymore. Think about my body. Think about my blood. I'm inaugurating the new covenant, and I'm doing this. This blood being poured out." This that's what Jesus, the historical Jesus said. Um, he doesn't say anything about being God. This is, what, whether, the, the Passover lamb wasn't God. True, but who could, Jesus claims to be the Passover lamb. That's not claiming to be God. That's claiming to be the one that God has sent to suffer for others. Who can change it, though? Who can change that tradition? God gave him the authority. So he says that, he says God told me to do it? He doesn't say, so I'm he God. Just says, I don't think it's a real historical, and, and as you just pointed out, it doesn't pass the criterion of dissimilarity. Well, let's go back to, to what you said, because it, it seems like you have kind of a straw man with this whole point. You want to say, unless I see in the text Jesus walking around saying he's God, then there's no way Jesus claims to be God. But even in the Gospel of John, as we said, where in John does Jesus say, I am Pantheos? Where does that, where does he say that? I think where he comes closest, where, well, when he says, I am the Father of One, that's pretty close. Okay, but he never says, I am God. Where he comes closest, I think, was in John 8, 58, where he says, um, the Jews are talking to him about Abraham, and he says, Abraham is looking forward to my day. And uh, the Jews said, look, you're not 50 years old. How, how, would, you, how would you know Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Um, that is almost always taken by interpreters to not simply be claiming that he existed before Abraham, you know, 1,800 years earlier, uh, but that he's, he appears to be claiming the divine name for himself. Uh, it appears to be a reference to Exodus chapter 3, where uh, Moses, at the burning bush, 
is told to go uh, deliver the children of Israel from their slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, well, they're not going to trust me. Who should I say sent me? And God, God says, tell them that I am sent you. I am that, that I am. And that becomes the name Yahweh, doesn't it? No, it's hard to know. I mean, it's, etymologically, it's close. It doesn't, it doesn't actually become the name Yahweh. It's spelled but it's still not just saying I am God, and that's my point. Jesus did not go around just saying when, I am God. When and if you said, look at the majority of sayings in John, Jesus is constantly pointing to the Father. He's pointing to how he came to reveal the Father. There's that subordinationism yeah. even there. Not, I'm not saying ontologically, right. but he's equal. With, he's no, equal if with you God. want to say that he doesn't claim to be God in the Gospel of John, I'm happy. No, I that. believe he. he <laughs> but the way you're saying, see, you're trying to set up a straw man and say, unless I see him say, I am God, he didn't claim to be God. Let's go back to the Son of Man. Then. Why doesn't he say any of these sayings in the synoptics? Let's go back to the Son of Man. Hey, great, great transition point. So, you agree that the Son of Man figure is the highest, most exalted figure in Second Temple Judaism that that's closest to God Almighty Himself. You, you said that in, in your recent book. No, sure so, if Jesus claimed no, to be that, that Son of Man. That's a little extreme. I wouldn't quite put it that way. That's putting a lot of weight on the Son of Man. You wouldn't put it the way you put it? What chapter are you quoting? I quoted my presentation. I mean, the thing is, there are lots of figures like the Son of Man in Judaism. You're isolating one of them. Okay, but let's just, let's say you don't want to, you want to change a little bit and not put it as exalted. Is Jesus making a claim to divinity if the historical Jesus did claim to be the Son of Man? He didn't. From Daniel. If he claimed to be the Son of Man, is it a claim to you, divinity? You mean if Jesus claimed to be God, would he have claimed to be God? No. If he claimed to be the Son of Man, would that have been a claim to divinity? You're Mark? asking me a hypothetical. I'm not granting. I don't agree that Jesus called of himself the Son do. of Man. Of course you don't. You if he did call himself the Son I mean, you have this presupposition if that Jesus, Jesus called himself it. Yahweh, would he be calling himself Yahweh? Yes. But he didn't. That's the whole argument. Mark, Mark 14 says he did. Uh-huh. Where did Mark get his information? Joseph Arimathea wasn't there? He wasn't in that, in that council? He's not in Mark, no. He's not in Mark? No. Why would he? No. Have you read Richard Bauer's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses? Have I read Jesus and the Eyewitnesses? Are you kidding me? I just read a book about it. Have you read Richard Bauer's argument? It's very clear. <laughs> Joseph, Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea gave them the information. <laughs> How do you know he didn't? You're making a historical claim. You're making a historical claim that Joseph of Arimathea told Mark this. What is your evidence? No, no, I didn't say he told Mark this. I'm oh, saying, who did he tell? Well, I'm saying he told the earliest Christians, and eventually Mark is definitely a disciple of Peter. And I'm saying information got there. Yeah, it's possible. You don't think that got the, that Jesus as a Galilean preacher who got arrested, you don't think that the what he was accused of, what he ended up saying in that trial, wouldn't have been spread like wildfire? No, I don't. I think, no, it's only common sense if you think that Jesus was important to people like Pilate and Caiaphas as he is to you. Well, no, no. Alright. Uh, no, no. Sure. I'm going to opportunity to grow you a little bit. So, we'll go ahead and do a quick and Dr. Ehrman you can uh, cross-examine Dr. Bass. Is, is this fine doing that? Taking that it's a wireless mic. You cut, cut the wireless. Or you're experiencing you Okay. Well, trust me, what he said is correct. <laughs> can you turn this on? No, uh, Mike Lacona is here. Mike's giving a talk. and I, I had a debate with, with Mike once. Was there a first or a second debate? We've had several debates. One time, Mike had laryngitis. It was great. 
<laughs> I love the debate where I only hear myself speak. <laughs> All right, good. Okay, Justin, uh, let me ask you this. Do you think there are any of the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels that he did not actually say? I would say that all four of the Gospels are definitely working on something he did say, but the fact that it's written on in Greek means that we have, I think I think I would distinguish the way I've, I've taught my students is the dif difference between the verba, the exact words of Jesus, versus the voice of Jesus. So I would say in probably the majority of places we have more the voice of Jesus. We have it just by, uh, by nature of it being translated into Greek from Aramaic. But Jesus said something that is accurate, and the, what the gospel writers are bringing out is the voice of Jesus. Just like you quoted, you, you mentioned Thucydides. Right, so you think that basically the saints in John are basically the things he said? I, I'm saying, yeah, John, there was something Jesus said that John is probably through, I think he, John is guided by the, he believes he's guided by the Paracletos, the, the spirit, and so he's, you know, so, so we can debate whether John is accurately bringing out the voice of Jesus. Yeah, but that's it's what definitely, I'm it's based, it's, well, I believe he is, but okay. I think it's based on so, something historical. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. So Jesus said something like, before Abraham was, I am. He probably made some sort of uh, very divine claim. No, no, I'm asking in, in Jerusalem, yes. Did he say something like that? Did yes. he say, before Abraham was, I am? Yes. And did he say, um, I am the Father are one? Yes. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Yes. Okay. Uh, those would be pretty exalted claims. I agree. I, I'm trying to go off. See, I'm going off of the historical investigation of okay. New Testament scholars, okay. majority of Christian scholars, like Son of Man, which they agree. No, no, I'm not talking about Son of Man, because none of those things says anything about the Son of Man. It's um, a divine claim, like the Son of Man. So what I'm asking is, if Jesus, during his ministry, made these kinds of exalted claims for himself, um, before Abraham was, I am, claiming the divine name for himself. He would um, get him crucified. Oh, is that why they crucified him? It says they condemned him to death because of blasphemy, yes. Who condemned him to death? The Sanhedrin. Did the Sanhedrin crucify him? No. Okay. He was, why they, was that's, he how, that's why they handed him over. He was crucified as a messianic pretender. I believe, even if Jesus went around claiming to be God, Pilate would care less of that. All he cared about was a so-called king if he was going to fight. Okay, so let me get back to my question. Okay. If Jesus is going around saying these sorts of things, I and the Father are one, which, by the way, he doesn't say this trial in the synoptics. Okay, but uh, can I clarify that, with that? No, let me ask my question. Um, before Abraham was, I am, which he doesn't say in the synoptic trials. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, which he doesn't say in the synoptic trials. If Jesus was saying those things, that would be an amazing thing for a human being to be claiming about himself. That would be the most amazing thing about him. That would be the one thing you would want to say about him. This man was claiming to be God. So why is it not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke? I think it is. What did the high priest ask him? The high priest asked him, are you no. the Messiah? He said, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, yes. Exactly. And then Just as Solomon say, would have said, did Solomon, or David did, would have said. When did David say he was a son? God says, God says you are my son, today I have begotten you. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. That's quoting Psalm 2, but when does David, in the historical narrative of David, when does he talk like Jesus? When does he say, I'm the son and he's the father? No one knows You're importing things here, I'm asking. If, I'm Jesus, talked, if Jesus said things like, 
Before Abraham was, I am. And I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why would Matthew, Mark, and Luke make no notation of those sayings? It's interesting. You don't allow any type of literary artistry with these gospel writers. It's as if they I think it's all literary artistry. Okay, okay, so so well then allow a little bit, will you? I what, what for, is, what I, that's what I, that's what I'm trying to tell okay, you. It's is, literary artistry. Okay, so what it's is, not history. No, no, no. It's, it's literary no, artistry. It's, it's the voice of Jesus. And so I'm saying John, if John is more focused on the way Jesus talked about himself in Jerusalem. And he's more You're not answering my question. My question is God. not about John. My question is about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why don't they I'm say so? I'm explaining. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke want to build a case, an implicit case, probably based on the way Jesus himself acted, he was a riddle. He used his ciphers like the Son of Man. Who is this? They don't know who he is. It, it, these amazing things that he, do, that he does points to who he is, but it's not until the end of all three of those Gospels, the Christological climax of the Synoptics, that he makes the divine claim. That's on the same level as before Abraham was. May I point out something? The high priest asks, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus says, yes. Yes. And he, what does he He does not go on to say, I am the Son of Man. He says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. How did Caiaphas take that? Caiaphas cried out blasphemy. Why would he call that last if he was talking about another figure? That's a great question. Maybe because he was calling himself the Messiah. No, I think it was because he was claiming to be the Son of Man. And I think he was also. What does Caiaphas say about why he did? He was, he was claiming to be the Lord of some of Okay, could you, explain, could you explain how that passage passes the criterion of dissimilarity? Well, I think. You're a little bit too rigorous. I think you're a little bit too rigid. No, I'm just asking you to explain. To well, I think I think it passes the criteria of similarity actually because this the earliest Christians never called you because you said even in your talk I want to, let's let's talk about that. The early Christians don't call Jesus the Son. You said they worshipped him as the Son of Man. Show me the evidence where the early Christians worshipped Jesus. As Revelation the Son of Man. chapter one. Where does it's not the Son of Man the way it is in the Gospels? That's that's clearly an allusion to Daniel. 7. You don't think the followers of Jesus thought he was the Son of Man? Oh, I think they definitely did, but I'm okay, saying... Okay, then they tell me how it passes the criterion of dissimilarity. Because the earliest Christians don't call him the Son of Man. They call him Lord. They so call they him think Christ. he's the Son of Man, but they, they call don't call him the Son of that? God. But they don't call him the Son of Man. Show me... You pick one passage out I'm of just, four... I'm just trying to get my head around this. You think that they believed he was the Son of Man, and they worshipped him as the Son of Man, but they didn't call him the Son of I'm Man. I'm saying the only way you know that is because it's on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. So why is the early Christians not calling him? But you are saying... So you are so saying. The criteria of let me do that. Okay, I just want a yes or no answer. Okay. You are saying that they believed he was the Son of Man, they revered him as the Son of Man, they worshipped him as the Son of Man, but they did not call him the Son of Man. That, that's what you're saying. Kind <laughs> Yes. But, that, but that, even if I say that, that passes the criteria. Okay, let me ask this. Let me ask this. How much time do I have? 12 minutes. Perfect. Um, you, you agreed with me that the Gospels are written decades after the events. Yes. Um, how, how do you imagine it is that these Gospel writers are able to record things that Jesus really said if they're living 40 or 50 years later? Well, if Mark, see, this is why you read me Richard Bauman, but uh, Mark is, if he has Peter as his main source, then I think that's a pretty good eyewitness for the life of saints of Jesus. Okay. Have you have you done any study in eyewitnesses? I mean, for example, if you read any legal literature about what what's lawyers think about eyewitness testimony, or 
you know, most people have, including, well, uh, people who have been quoted here. Um, there's an extensive literature on eyewitness testimony that you can find in, uh, in legal sources, for example, uh, and in psycho psychological literature, uh, which show beyond any doubt that eyewitness testimony cannot be relied on simply because it's eyewitness testimony. But in fact, eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable. And so, I'm wondering, let me ask this. Have you, um, have you heard any of Obama's speeches, like one of his State of the Union addresses? Would you be able to repeat them for me? No. Can I ask you a question on that? No, no, I'm asking the question. You said it would be more free. My point, my point is, my point is, none of us could do that. And these are speeches. Just take this last State of the Union address. It was a very important speech, and we probably heard parts of it over and over again on the news. But we can't reproduce it. What makes us think that somebody living 40 or 50 years after Jesus could record his very sayings? Let me let me stress that's that in oral cultures. They did not preserve their traditions word for word the same. They didn't memorize these things. We know this. So, how did it happen, in your opinion? Let's try a thought experiment. <clears throat> how many people can remember exactly what they did on 9 11? Raise your hand. Yeah, you know what? There have been pretty good really, memory. Have you ever heard now, of flashbacks? Have you ever heard of Raise the Dead? What if you saw someone. Oh, yeah, no, it's great. it's great. It's a great What do you remember? Yeah, so, here's the, here's the deal. I don't know if you've ever heard of flashbulb memories. Flashbulb memories. I just wrote a book on memory, so I'm really into, I'm, in, I'm interested in memory. I'm interested in what eyewitness testimony is, and whether it's valuable, and, and whether people remember things accurately. A flashbulb memory is like you're remembering where you were at 9 11. So uh, it, it's called a flashbulb memory because there are certain things that happen to us that are just so emotionally wrenching that we remember exactly when we, where we were at the time, and who we were with, and who we heard it from. And just like it's crystallized in our head as if like a flashbulb went off and you took a picture of it. And in your head, it stays there for years and years. Okay, that's a flashbulb. So psychologists have studied this phenomenon of flashbulb memories, and they've done it in rather clever ways. For example, when the, uh, the spaceship, uh, the Challenger, uh, blew up, they, uh, some psychologists in the university had all the students sit down in their class, 50 students, and take the questionnaire. Where were you? How did you hear it? Who did you hear it from? What time did you hear it? What were you wearing? They asked them all those questions. Three years later, they got the students back together, and they gave them a second questionnaire, the same questionnaire. Except for what the first question was, did you ever take this questionnaire with you? More than half the students thought the answer was no. And over half of the students got almost everything wrong. And when they got it wrong and they were confronted with this, they invariably said, no, 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 it's like I remember it. Yeah, but you've got this written document. Well, I was wrong then, because I'm right now. They've repeated this experiment time after time after time. Among psychologists, you can read the literature. This is, this, has, this is literature not written by Christian scholars about the New Testament. It's simply how our minds work. 
we remember things, or we think we remember things, and remember them incorrectly. It's just the reality. So, if we can't reproduce Obama's speech, I'm just wondering how we would know that somebody 50 years later can produce speech. Now, the easiest answer to that is simply to say the Holy Spirit inspired them. But then you're not giving a historical answer anymore. So Peter was behind Mark, and Peter gave the information that we have in Mark. If that was his eyewitness recollections, even if, say, all the things you said are accurate, you wouldn't think that we have some pretty solid memory and, and, and things that are going on. In the I think we'd have to test it. Actually, Jesus said... We'd test it. We would test it the way that a lawyer tests eyewitness testimony in court. You'd critically examine it. Like the... Like the, the okay, so I think I'm asking a question. So let me ask you another question. Um, how, how much time do I have? Oh, how would you differentiate between a historical approach to the Gospels and a theological approach? Uh, I, I think uh, reading the Gospels in a more devotional way, uh, praying that God would open my eyes to see what you know, He's teaching me through the Word and, and believing that, that these are the very words of, of the living God learning from them, being edified from them, growing them, versus going through and, and applying the criteria that you and I agree on, I'm not, I'm not as, as rigid as you, but, but agreeing that we, we can look and find what is the verbatim of Jesus by certain uh, criteria, and, and what is the multiple attestation criteria of similarity, and kind of whittle down to the, okay, Abba, Jesus said that, you know, I don't think anybody's going to debate that Jesus said Abba. I'm just, so, I'm, and look, which is the, so the devotional is when you pray for God to open your eyes and understand the text, and the historical is when you apply historical criteria. When you apply historical criteria to find more closer to the historical Jesus, because I believe that the Jesus presented in all four Gospels, in one uh -huh. facet of ways, yeah, okay. is accurate for okay. the way so, God is presenting him to us. But there is a historical Jesus behind the four Gospels. Okay. So, if you, if you think criteria. that we have to apply historical criteria to approach the Gospels historically, when you apply the criteria, do you find that any of the sayings of Jesus do not pass the criteria? Sorry, say, say that last part again. You, ju you just said that you think if you're approaching the Gospels historically, you have to apply the criteria, the historical criteria. Such as, you know, would a Christian have put this on Jesus' lips? Is this, is it multiply a test? I'm asking, oh, yeah, yes, when yes, you yes. apply those criteria, are there things that do not pass the criteria? Well, this, go, this goes back to the voice versus the verba. And yes, I would say in the voice, I'll give you an example. John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, uh, Now this is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God, and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, it's very unlikely Jesus, during his life, called himself Jesus Christ. So that's probably John. That's the voice of Jesus. Now, he said something in, in that prayer. He prayed something very close to that. So, uh -huh. so, And it's not false that he's Jesus Christ, uh -huh. but Jesus probably didn't actually say Jesus uh -huh. Christ. Okay, that. okay, that's a good example. So, so, um, so you think that the gospel writers are changing some of the words of Jesus, which is not significant? Yes. Okay. Definitely. Is there anything... Adapting that, them for their own purposes, Jeff. Is there... Is there anything at all that doesn't pass the criteria in the Gospels for you? You mean that... It, it, is there anything that's not historical in the Gospels? Well, we'd have to look at things by, I think, on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, yeah. Uh, Are there any cases that you think don't pass, well, they're I mean, not historical? I, I, I said, I, I, I think that, if we had a, a 
video camera, Jesus wouldn't have said Jesus Christ. So that's an example. It's not historical. Okay, give me some other examples. Uh, uh, I can think about that. But I mean, if you're approaching it historically, I mean, that, that means you, you, you know, you're a historian, you've done this. And so I just want to know, when you've done that, what are the results? Well, I think what, what I can say is, is what I can, kind of similar to what I presented tonight. So I can go down and whittle down through the, the, the criteria. Yeah, just say, tell okay, me. What is only no, give, me, give me some examples. Abba would be one. Abba? Yeah. Jesus didn't say Abba? No, Jesus did say that. I'm asking which things did, are not historical. Oh, are not, oh, are not. Oh, okay, okay. I see. Which, which things in the Gospels are not historical? Okay, well, a, a fun example that usually comes up in these Q&A, so I'll use it now. Uh, you know, the, the, the zombie apocalypse, you know, in Matthew 27, where, you know, people come out of their graves when Jesus dies. Uh-huh. You, know, you don't think that happened? Well, no, I'm saying that, well, I'm saying that it's possible that that's apocalyptic language used by Matthew, and that didn't actually historically happen. That's, that's definitely not. Well, it's possible. I mean, anything's possible. Do you think it happened or not? Oh, I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic on that. <laughs> so my question... I'm not, I'm not for sure. But I'm yeah, not sure. I, I would, okay, I'll, I'll, I would lean towards the apocalypticism there. Yes. No, it means you think it didn't happen. Yes. You don't think it happened? Okay, so there is something in the gospel that didn't really happen, even though the gospel writer said it happened. But I mean, once you start they're, saying they're that, using, why, they're why? using genre. There's certain genre like apocalyptic. I'm just look. I'm just asking. You're making it sound like though. I'm not trying to ask a hard question. Like if you were to ask me what things in the gospel do you think didn't happen, I would give you a list of things I didn't. Well, I know that. So I'm just asking. You said you're approaching it as a historian. I'm asking you as a historian. You're assuming you though that because you're a historian looking at the gospels. There has to be things that didn't actually. No, I don't think that. They're big, they could be all accurate. If you okay, think they're yeah. all accurate, you, want, you should well, say I, I think they're all accurate. Well, I gave you examples. I gave, so, but then, I mean, it doesn't seem to me that you're really doing the work that most historians Because do. I don't find as many errors as you do? No, because you don't seem to find any except for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> okay, let me ask one final question. I have a list ready. I've got two minutes. Okay. I, I, I have uh, well, but I mean, if you look, if you're, this is what you do, I mean, you're, you know, you know what you think about the gospel. You're a scholar. You got a PhD. You know what you think about the gospels. So let me just ask one other question. Am I glad to? The hand of God. <laughs> um, can you think of any other ancient biographies besides Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John written by any other ancient author? Uh, Plutarch's Lives, Seneca's uh, Lives of the Caesars, in which a historical scholar thinks that the sayings recorded are actually what the protagonist said. That the sayings are actually what the protagonist said. In other words, if you've got a biography of, you know, Alexander the Great, by Plutarch. About 400 years after Alexander's degree, uh -huh. like that's what he said. Can you think of, well, okay, take Suetonius then. Can you think of any biography, or take Tacitus, take any biography, can you think of one where a historian thinks that the words recorded are actually the words that were spoken? Well, Thucydides makes clear that 
he, when he records speeches, what he does is he if he can talk to the eyewitness, or he heard it himself, he wrote it down, but if not, he interviews people and tries to get the gist, he says, get the gist of what was said. And what happens, sounds probably a lot like what the gospel writers do. What does he say, though, about what he does when he doesn't have any evidence? That's what he says. He does his best. You stop too soon. What does he say then? How does he, how does he record speeches when he wasn't there? He made up things that were appropriate for the occasion. In other words, things that he thought the person should have said. Yeah, Thucydides did that. Yeah. Well, I was asking if you know somebody who didn't do that. Who didn't do that? Did not do that. Well, I, was, I think Josephus was uh, probably giving us some accurate. Okay, we, uh, I think we're out of time. So, uh, my wife. Um, so uh, since he already brought it up, in Richard Bauchan's Jesus and Eyewitnesses, he shows how the names used in the New Testament are accurately proportioned when compared what Palestinian Jewish names were popular at the time, um, and also with outside, I guess Josephus, the Sea Scrolls. Um, so, how do you account for the accuracy of the using the same proportion of names? Whereas in Egypt, they don't do that, and the apocryphal gospels, gospels, they don't do that. And also, of course, Joseph of Arimathea fits that criteria, which you doubt out of that consensus. Uh, most people that do believe that account. So, how would you? Why do you think that the gospels have the correct proportion? I think you're asking me, not Justin. Uh, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. No. I, I. Yeah. No. That's absolutely right. The Gospels uh, record the names of people who were uh, around Jesus, uh, and so the, the explanation is not difficult to find. It's because the traditions about Jesus go back to the early Aramaic-speaking Christian communities. Um, what they were changing was not the names of the people. What they were changing were all sorts of stories about Jesus and the sayings of Jesus. So um, they didn't. Um, so I, I don't. That's not proof of the accuracy of the accounts of the gospels. It just shows that the gospel ultimately, uh, in, in the stories about the figures connected with Jesus, go back to the early Aramaic-speaking community. Doctor Bass, would you like a quick follow-up? Yeah, I just uh, that thought experiment again. I think just thinking about where you were and what you were doing on 9/11, and, and I think someone here could even go back to. Uh, when JFK was shot, where were you? What was going on there? And we also have, uh, I've read some fascinating books where people who knew C.S. Lewis, you know, it's 60 years later and they can still talk about their memories of what he said and, and, and close encounters they had and, and things that they had. I think we have good evidence and good reason. And Richard Bauckham is a scholar on par with Thurman that definitely argues the opposite of what he has said that the eyewitness testimony is very important. And if Peter is behind Mark and behind these Gospels, then we have very good reason to trust these sayings and these stories are accurate. The most striking thing about that book is how little he shows that he's read up on the literature among psychologists and legal scholars about eyewitness testimony. All right, let's go to a question over here Thank for you. Dr. Bass. Uh, actually, to Dr. Ehrman, you have made your thesis that the Synoptic Gospels do not claim that Jesus asserts his divinity. I'll direct your attention to Mark chapter 2, first verse 28. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath itself. Now we're going to go a little earlier than that to chapter 2, verse 7, in which the Pharisees, the scribes, say that he's committing blasphemy. And according to Jewish law, you can only commit blasphemy if you utter the name of God because he's making himself God, because he's forgiving sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus answers this in verse 10. So that you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. I right, what is the you. question? So the question is, is this not proof 
that in the Gospel of Mark, in the parallel account in Matthew, that Jesus has in fact equated himself as God. Uh, no. So, um, when, the, when they say that uh, no one has power on earth uh, forgives sins except for God, uh, Jesus doesn't say, well, yeah, I'm God. What he says is the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. In other words, God has given him the authority to forgive sins. This is the same authority, by the way, that the priests in the temple had. In the Jewish temple, when uh, sacrifices were made, Jewish priests would pronounce that the person's sins were forgiven. In the past tense, just as in the passive voice, just as Jesus does with this man. Jesus doesn't tell the man, I forgive your sins. He says, your sins are forgiven. It's a divine passive that was used by the priests in the temple. Jesus is actually claiming to usurp the prerogatives of the priests in the temple. That's the offense. He's claiming that, in fact, he has the authority. They don't think he does, and so they, uh, they set out to stone him. The other thing I'll say about that is that I agree that Mark thinks Jesus was divine. I've said that. Mark thinks so. I'm saying that Jesus in Mark's Gospel does not say things like, Before Abraham was, I am. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He doesn't make the kind of claims he does in John where he comes out and says that he's a divine being. Dr. Bass, quick response? I would just say that's another implicit claim of divinity. I think it has its climax in Mark 14, but that, that leading up to it, and blasphemy is accused of Jesus there, and, and in Mark 14, where Jesus makes it very clear what he's claiming with the Son of Man and the Lord uh, at God's right hand, Psalm 110. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Question over here. I don't want to misrepresent you, but uh, I think your assumption behind your argument is that if Jesus was God and the historical Jesus claimed to be God, he would say things like, I am Yahweh, I am God, in synoptic gospels. However, I don't think that this is a, uh, a reliable assumption to make. If God is triune and Jesus is a distinct person from the Father, yet still is God, and Jesus refers to the Father as Yahweh, I don't think we should expect Jesus to say, I am Yahweh, because that would him with the person of the Father. So should we not expect to see exactly what we see in the synoptic gospel, that Jesus makes implicit claims to be divine, yet does not say, I'm not the because that would confuse him with the person of the Father? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So, uh, yeah, it, it's not quite what I was saying, though. I'm not saying that I, I would expect Jesus to say, I am not the What I'm saying is that the explicit claims to be divine are only in John. And if Jesus really said those things, why don't the synoptics tell us? That's my argument. Okay. Question over here for Dr. Arman. Thank can, you. If I can just say again. Uh, Go ahead. That, that quote from, from How Jesus Became God that Bart said, I, that I quoted in my presentation, he said that the Son of Man figure is the most exalted figure, almost equated to God Almighty himself. So that is the way. And that is how Jesus proclaimed himself as God without, as the questioner made clear, the gospel writer using Jesus himself with, with Absolutely. That's what the gospel writers thought. That's what the gospel writers thought. Question, sir. That's what Jesus thought. If you don't mind interrupting me again, please, Dr. Bass. Well, not My question is, uh, there were a couple of times in Paul's journeys when uh, he would heal somebody or get bitten by a poisonous snake and not die. The crowd would see it and conclude he was a god and start to worship him. He immediately stopped the worshiping. Similarly, in Revelation, John fell at the feet of the angel to worship the angel. The angel immediately stopped him. 
So my question is, if Jesus was not God, why did he freely allow himself to be worshipped? Is that me? For Dr. Herman. Yeah, I'm sorry. What, where, where do you think about people worshiping him? Well, they worshipped him because they thought he was God. No, no. I'm asking, where, where in the New Testament did they worship him? Well, after he walked on water, he got in the boat, and the disciples worshipped him. They, oh, no, the, when, when they talk about it, the Greek word there is proskuneo, and it's a word that simply means to bow down before somebody, and it's the term that's typically used for how you, how you uh, react when a king is in your presence. In other words, an earthly king. So, worship is really a kind of a strong word in English. It's not, there's not really a good word to translate proskuneo, but it, it doesn't mean worshiping a divine being necessarily. It just means prostrating yourself before somebody who, that you uh, completely revere. Why didn't he stop it when Paul and John and the angel did stop? Because they were being worshipped as God. Dr. Bass? I, I would disagree. I, I agree that proskuneo can take the uh, form of just prostrating, but in Matthew, I disagree, he's quoting from Matthew, five times Jesus is said to be proskuneo worship, and in Matthew 4, Jesus even says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's the word proskuneo, it's the strongest way you can say worship, and Jesus is worshipped that way five times. Thank you, sir. I think, I think there, there's, there's absolutely no way that Matthew, Matthew's Jesus calls himself God. He calls himself something. <laughs> Question, sir. Yes. Uh, this, this kind of is for Dr. Ehrman. It kind of goes back to the idea of Sabellianism and the fact of Jesus being uh, Yahweh. Yeah. Um, so I don't have a quote from Jesus in Matthew, but I do have a quote from John the Baptist where he says, uh, I am the voice crying uh, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And it's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, prepare the way of Yahweh. Yeah. Okay. So clearly Matthew or is quoting John to have equated yes. um, Yahweh yes. with the person. Right? Yes. I think the gospel writer thinks that Jesus is a divine being. And so does John the Baptist. According to the gospel, yeah. That, that's the gospel's portrayal of John the Baptist. We're asking whether Jesus called himself God. Right, but Sabellianism, if Sabellianism was Yahweh equals... Oh, well, no, the gospel doesn't think that Jesus is Yahweh. Because he prays. I mean, is Jesus talking to himself? <laughs> Yahweh is a different being from Jesus. Jesus is given a level of equality with Yahweh, but he's not Yahweh. This is, this is a very important point in early Christian theology, because if you don't differentiate between Jesus and Yahweh, uh, Tertullian called it patropassionism. Tertullian was, an early, Tertullian was the first uh, Christian author to use the term Trinity. And he attacked these people who thought Jesus was the Father, and he called them patropassionists because uh, patropassionism means the Father suffers. And he thought it was just ridiculous to think that the Father suffered and died. And so these people who think that Jesus was God, but you know, that he was Yahweh, have committed this, the heresy of thinking that the Father was crucified. So that's just, it's, the, the Gospel writers don't think that he's the same thing. There's a difference between saying that you're identical with God and saying that you're equal with God. The, new, the early Christians could say Jesus was equal with God, but they didn't say he's identical with God. Two different things. I think, Bart, I think Bart is confusing the way the New Testament is using the Old Testament because the New Testament writers, clearly, their 
the, uh, who is John the Baptist preparing the way for? Go back to Isaiah 40, it's Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. That's Exodus 3, that's Yahweh. Romans 10, Paul calls, uh, says, whoever calls the name of the Lord. Go back to Joel 2, it's Yahweh. What the New Testament writers, what he's talking about is they never apply Elohim to Jesus. No, no, that's talking about Yahweh. Yeah, well, Yahweh, I just gave you. Yahweh is the personal name, name of God. And, and there's only one thing. Every, almost every book of the New Testament. Right? No, they apply the word kurios. Kurios is the translation of Yahweh. It's also the translation of the word Adonai. Yes, but in Joel 2, is it Yahweh behind Kurios? No, you're missing the point. No, I'm not missing the point. You're missing the point. Do you think that Jesus was Yahweh? <laughs> Jesus was Yahweh in the flesh, yes. You think Jesus was Yahweh? Yahweh in the flesh, yes. Okay. Yeah. That's what <laughs> you're right? you I'm you're just telling you. I'm just telling you that... That that is that is called path of passion. No, you're misunderstanding. If way. he's Yahweh, you mean that he's equal with Yahweh. You surely don't mean that the Son is also the Father. You, no, definitely not. Okay, okay. the First, Father is Yahweh. No, no, no. See, that's where you're wrong. That's where you're misunderstanding. Elohim is the term that gets applied Elohim to Jesus. Is, no, no, no. The opposite. You got that wrong. I promise. You got All right, wrong. let's go to our next question over here. Yahweh is Jesus. <laughs> All right, I want to thank both of you guys for doing this and putting on an excellent, lively debate for us. Um, yeah, give it up, everybody. Um, my question is, I'm going to kind of throw a challenge out to you guys. And when I think, of, this is something that I think is often overlooked in the conversations and uh, debates about early Christianity and the origin, uh, origination of early Christianity. Uh, the early Christians spoke in tongues. They they had visions. Uh, they were fairly comparable to modern-day Pentecostals. And when I think about this, it, it affects my understanding of how reliable we should see the uh, biblical uh, community, the uh, uh, early Christian communities, and how we should trust what they have passed down to us. So I want to get each of your perspectives on how you see that uh, that kind of activity in the early church affecting how we should think about them. Dr. Bass, once you start, well. I, I think for, for many reasons, uh, we're not time to get into all of them, but I mean, I think there's good reasons to trust them. I think when you look at just Paul, for example, I mean, you look at 1 Corinthians 13 and the way he talks about love, you look at the way he loved his uh, people, his the churches, he, he loved them with tears. You look at the character of the kind of people that we have. Paul's a, a great example. You know, go, obviously, go back to Christ, but when you look at the early Christians, they seem to be very trustworthy, and, and as it moved on, I think uh, a great book is uh, by Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity. You see how the early Christian community really did affect and change and put in unique things that transformed the Roman Empire in amazing ways. So I think they're very trustworthy. Yeah, you're asking whether the early Christians were trustworthy, is that? Well, you know, when we think about the sociology of group movements, early yeah. new religious movements, we yeah. find that they typically have a very uh, enthusiastic understanding, uh, appreciation for their own ideology uh, to a cult-like degree. And, and you know, I'm not raising the question of is Christianity, was first Christianity, first century Christianity a cult? What I'm asking is, given these kinds of behaviors, I mean, why should we not think it was a cult? <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, it depends how you define cult. I, would, I mean, I would say it was a sectarian movement within early Judaism. I think there were elements of Christianity that did develop a kind of fortress mentality that you get in, in uh, 
that kind of sectarian movement. And there have been sociologists of religion who have studied Christianity in light of uh, separationist movements, and I think that it can be a fruitful way to And if I may caveat that a little bit, I think when we talk about uh, you know some of the how we got the oral tradition, you know, if they had visions that they thought were maybe inspired, or uh, they spoke in tongues and they thought those were inspired, couldn't that have affected how they saw you know certain uh, evidential claims or, or sayings of Jesus that maybe came in his vision or you know, however? Maybe. Yeah. Question. As I understand it, the resolution tonight was: Did the historical Jesus claim to be divine, or um, and not did the historical Jesus claim to be divine, or maybe I don't know. Dr. Ehrman, it seems that your stance was the latter and have failed to make an argument this evening that ends with the conclusion, therefore the historical Jesus did not claim to be divine. Rather, your argument seems to merely end with the conclusion that perhaps we can't know. At best, your case seems to leave us with agnosticism uh, with regards to the resolution tonight. Uh, do you not have any evidence you could give us for your position tonight other than incredulity or skepticism? And why, in the absence of an argument, should I join you in your skepticism I am skeptical of your skepticism. So the applause, please. I, I, I just don't think you should be so skeptical. <laughs> um, you cannot prove a negative. And so there's no way to prove that Jesus, you can't prove the negative. Did Jesus, I think the answer is no. How do I prove I can't prove that. So let me tell you the evidence. The evidence is that in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes clear divine claims for himself. He does not make those claims for himself in the earliest sources we have for Jesus. He doesn't make those claims in Mark, in Matthew, in Luke, in Q, in M, or in L. Those are the six sources that we know about that record the sayings of Jesus from the earliest period. Jesus doesn't make those claims for himself until a, until a gospel that was probably written 65 years after Jesus' death. So if you want to say that Jesus called himself divine, you have the burden of proof, because you're trying to prove a positive. You cannot prove a negative. But if you're going to say that Jesus called himself divine, you have to explain why it is none of our earliest sources thought it was important to mention it. I gave the Q saying where Jesus says, no one knows the Son but the Father. No one knows the Father but the Son. But Bart says, oh, but Jesus didn't say that. I gave the Son of Man saying, where Jesus makes clear he's the Son of Man. He's the Lord of, uh, at God's right hand. Bart says, oh, but he didn't say that. You know, he has a good line with the mythicists. He says, it's a scholarship of convenience. The mythicists just eliminate something that doesn't fit their view. And I think Bart is doing that tonight to not be, uh, admit that Jesus did, in fact, claim to be God. Next question, please. Thank you, Dr. Ehrman. Uh, first, I want to say, great honor. When I was in medical school, you were actually the first uh, historian that I ever looked, uh, looked to for uh, the life of Jesus. Um, despite that, I became a Christian. Um, <laughs> but I did appreciate it. Uh, teaching courses, they were great. I learned a lot. Um, and, and so I, I, I honor both of you for this. Uh, my, my question is actually one about your flashbulb memories. Uh, I, I would never challenge either of you on theologic issues, but I'm I, I, I am looking for a point of clarification. I'm an emergency physician, and so I am aware of studies and, and the, the care that you have taken, what they, and how you represent those studies. Um, 
it, it, it is my understanding, I haven't written a book or anything, but I do study it in the way of emotional trauma. And the way the, the hippocampus and amygdala work around emotional memories are very different based on the proximity and the direct influence of that. And, and I think you would have seen that in your literature. Uh, so for instance, somebody who witnessed the Challenger event would probably be, be very different than somebody who was on the ground witnessing it or had a loved one who was involved in it. And then the other piece of that, that I guess I'd ask for clarification of too, you said that 50% of the, the details were different from that. And, and again, in, especially calling out legal literature, like when we have to go testify for rape cases or something, one of the typical ways that the legal system will try to do this is to talk about details. What color shirt were you wearing? What, what type of you know, shoes were they wearing? And where, you know, details about this. And then try to disclaim the fact that it happened. Uh, and so I think the literature is pretty clear about the fact that, it, that while things are in error, maybe like how many people were there, whether it was two women or a man and a woman, or whether they, what did they exactly do afterwards, uh, which you could bring up to the resurrection case as well, are you claiming that the literature in the summary of your book is that all is unreliable regardless of the proximity? Yeah. Um, so. The, the, the psychological literature on this is really quite compelling. Uh, there are a number of books written on flashbulb memories uh, that include such things as, uh, as rape victims and what they, what they remember and what can be demonstrated as being, uh, as probably being, a, in fact, demonstrably a false memory. Uh, I mean, I can give you case studies. But they were not actually raped, right? Um, okay, so I'll give you an example. Um, there was a, a woman who was, uh, who was watching uh, television and a man broke into her house and he uh, violently raped her. The uh, police were called after he left and um, they, um, they gave a lineup, uh, they, they gave photographs and she positively identified somebody. And uh, they brought the person in with others, and she did a lineup. She positively identified him. And he was put up on trial um, for raping her because it had just happened a couple hours earlier. Uh, it turned out that he had a rock-solid alibi. He was, doing, he was doing a TV show at the time, live TV show. She had been watching the TV show and she identified her rapist as the man she'd been seeing on the TV. So she had a very clear memory, but it was a false memory. Uh, so that's just one example, but I'm, there are, uh, the literature is quite extensive, and it, it's contrary to what we think, because we, we are sure we know where we were when JFK got shot, at least I am, and I, I know exactly where I was at 9-11, I know, but I'm telling you that the psychological, what, what, the, what the psychological studies have said is that the memory mechanism is no different for flashbulb memories than for other memories. But you've still stated, though, so you've, you've represented the thing that occurred quickly in the man. I bet she remembered what TV show, what was going on that night, and other details were like. She remembered some details and not others. Which is different about the fact of uh, something that occurs quickly, very reliable in the sense of somebody running through the room when it was unnoticed. And just, versus spending time with somebody, if somebody ran through the room, for instance, and we said, what color was that guy's shirt that he was wearing, we would all get that wrong. But if they asked us now or in six weeks, 
what were you doing? Who was debating? Oh no, no, that's the same. Would you go ahead and finish? I'm just I would say I would say that that makes perfect sense for most of us. It's just common sense, and the psychological literature shows it's wrong. So I, if you want, just write me an email. I'll, I'll give you the I'll, I'll give you the references. I mean, there, because there, it's not biased literature. It's just psychologists trying to figure this out. Is is it true or not? And so uh, it's worth it's worth knowing what how good eyewitness testimony is. All right, we're, this will be our last question. I, I apologize to those in line. I just want to say, um, in reference to the example of the Obama speech, just just keep in mind an Obama speech is not like seeing someone be raised from the dead. No, we're asking about Jesus' words. We're remembering something. We're asking, did, did Matthew remember the three-chapter Sermon on the Mount? Did he remember Jesus calling him Satan? Did Matthew remember that? I'm asking whether the gospel writers writing 50 years later remembered the, the words of Jesus. If we can't remember what Obama said a couple of months ago, why would a gospel writer remember what Jesus We're said? Disinterested the only answer, the only answer to that is that the Holy Spirit inspired them. If, if Peter was there and Peter... No, Peter wouldn't necessarily remember. Look, I'm an eyewitness to Obama's speech. I heard it live. He's not being called Satan by Jesus. I'm asking, did Jesus deliver the Sermon on the Mount? That's not remembering him say that you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. He's going to remember those things. Those, those are not the ones. I'm, I'm asking. You don't need the spirit inspiration. All right, you don't want this. Yes, sir. Question right here. Uh, does it matter which question is being asked? Because uh, the two questions, uh, the, the historical Jesus claim to be divine, seems to be being used interchangeably with uh, did the historical Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, it's a great question. Did, uh, is it the same thing to say that Jesus claimed to be divine as saying that Jesus claimed to be God? Is that, yeah. is that the same question? Yeah, no, that's a great question. My view is that in the ancient world, uh, all people, whether they were um, Jews or, uh, or pagans before Christianity, thought that there was a range of divine beings and they had no trouble calling all these beings gods. So that um, there, are, there are divine beings who are, there's like a superior divine being, but then there are lesser divine beings, and lower divine beings, and lower divine beings, and lower divine, and even humans who are divine beings, and they would call all those people gods. And so, I, so in, in English, it might sound like divine isn't as big of a thing as being God, but for, for the stuff we're talking about, I think it, it means basically the same thing. It's, it's functionally equivalent. I would disagree slightly. I, I would say the reason why I did, when we, when we agreed upon this debate topic, I chose divine specifically because I wanted to be more accurate with the way Jesus did proclaim himself. And like I said, and even according to, uh, as we agreed in John, Jesus never says, I am Atheos. He never says, I am God. He doesn't say that because that would confuse God the Father. And that's what, not the claim he made. He did make a divine claim to be one with the God of Israel, and the way he did that was the Son of Man claim referring to its unique sonship and things like that. So, divine things is the better All right, we're going to move to our next portion. Sorry, we didn't get to all the questions tonight, just a ton constraint. But we're going to move to our closing statements, which Dr. Bass will have five minutes, followed by Dr. Ehrman. Well, thanks so much for coming out tonight. This was uh, really great. Uh, I, thought it, I thought it was very lively at times. I thought we had some good discussion. We, one of my goals we talked about on the way here was just that 
The audience will be better educated on both sides. I don't think we heard some real, any really strong arguments against uh, the, the, the motion. I don't, I don't think we really heard even great challenges except just saying, oh, well, I just don't believe he said that. I don't believe he said he was a son of man. But even if he did, but if he did say the son of man, then he was making a divine claim. So I don't think we heard a strong case that Jesus didn't claim to be a divine man. I have laid out a case that the earliest writings, my first point, was the earliest writings, the earliest disciples of Jesus, that go back to within 10 to 20, to 20 years of Jesus' death, proclaimed him as God. That came from somewhere. It's absolutely unparalleled and unique to say a human being, a crucified human being, is equated with Yahweh, is creator of the universe, and is worshipped the way he, he does. The second point I made is Jesus made implicit claims. This seems to be the way the historical Jesus talked about himself. It's very implicit. He was not explicit until the last week of his life. And that was my third point. That in the last week of his life, he did make certain claims. He claimed to be the Lord of Psalm 110. He even alluded to that earlier. And I have an excellent book that, that Bart references in, in his book, Glory at the Right Hand, Psalm 110 and Early Christianity, David Hay. This kind of definitive work on the, on the use of Psalm 110 in the New Testament. And he says the historical Jesus did claim to be the Lord of Psalm 110. He accepts the historicity of that. And that's why the early Christians called him Lord over and over again. And as I said, many strong, uh, brilliant, critical scholars do accept that Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man and that the historical accuracy that only makes sense if it's historical, that he was black being blasphemous, and, and that's what he was accused of, and that's what led him to be handed over to Pilate to be crucified. Let me just summarize just so you get a, get a feel of what I think critical scholarship does show in regards to the self-consciousness of Jesus and Adam. Jesus called the God of Israel, Abba, an intimate address for a Jew to make. And it was because Jesus knew himself to be his son. Jesus also knew himself to be the bearer of the Spirit of God, doing miracles and casting out demons. God's kingdom, he believed, was breaking into the world through his person and through his ministry. He knew he was the Messiah, the son of David, the one Israel longed for to reestablish God's kingdom to Israel. Jesus also knew that it was the Father's will for him to suffer and die. I think that the, the, the Lord suffered, that those sayings in 1 Corinthians 11 demonstrate that Jesus knew that he was going, his blood was going to pay for sins, as he says in that saying. And he united this idea of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the son of man of Daniel 7. And he as the son of man would not only suffer and die at the hands of God's enemies, but he would also one day be vindicated by God. Jesus, as the Son of Man, would even judge all of mankind and angels one day and rule and reign over God's kingdom as the Lord at God's right hand of Psalm 110. In sum, as God's unique Son, the suffering servant of Isaiah, of Isaiah, the Son of Man from Daniel, the Lord of Psalm 110, Jesus claimed to share in the unique identity of the one God of Israel. He knew himself to be his Son. He knew him the Father to be his Abba. This is how in a radically monotheistic context, Jesus claimed to be divine. And if I could, I just wanted to close with bringing this more closer to our hearts. If we want to go to the very bedrock, we, we were in a cone of what, what, what is the very bedrock of Christianity, of what we believe. I think it is a man dying on a cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the most indisputable facts of history is that Jesus of Nazareth hung on that Roman cross one Friday. You know as a historical fact, we all know as a historical fact, that Jesus hung on that cross. This is as certain as anything historical can be. So I want to ask you to ask your own heart tonight. You know he hung on that cross. 
Did he hang on that cross and die for you? The C.S. Lewis trilemma is before you tonight. If Jesus claimed to be God, which he did in his own Jew, in the Jewish way, the way of the Hebrew Scriptures, if he claimed to be the Son of Man, if he claimed to be the Lord of Psalm 110, then he was either a liar, he was crazy, or he was and is Lord of all. Hear Jesus' questions again tonight afresh. Who do you say that I am? I say Jesus is Lord. And I know he hung on that cross and died for me. Thanks. Okay, thank you. And thank you, uh, thank you Justin, for that uh, very lively debate. Uh, very, uh, very interesting. And uh, you, uh, you um, uh, know your stuff? Very good. So... Right. Um, let me summarize a couple of things from my point of view. Uh, Justin and I agree that the early Christians thought Jesus was God. Um, the Apostle Paul uh, thought that Jesus, in some sense, was divine. Paul certainly did not think that Jesus was the God of Israel. Um, he thought that he was equal with God. Uh, it's quite clear that the God of Israel sent Jesus into the world and then after his resurrection, exalted him to the highest status possible, that of equality with himself, God the Father. Um, he's not God the Father. He, for Paul, he's been elevated to the position of uh, equality with God, but not identity with God. Um, the Gospel writers certainly understand that Jesus is a divine being. Um, and so we're not disagreeing about that. Uh, John, quite obviously, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, it dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten before the Father. So, the Word is the, the being that's equal with God that becomes a human being, that's Jesus. That's what John thinks. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have that exalted view of Jesus, but they, they still understand that Jesus is God. And in their Gospels, Jesus says things that can be implicitly taken to be understood that Jesus understands himself to be a divine being. Absolutely. Why is that? Because these Gospel writers are understanding Jesus in that way, and that's how they're portraying him. Please remember, though, what we're talking about in the debate. We're not talking about whether later Christians thought Jesus was God. We're asking whether Jesus called himself God. He does in the Gospel of John. No, he doesn't say, Ego eimi haftaos, I am God. But he says before Abraham was, I am, and I and the Father are one, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He absolutely is claiming equality with God in the Gospel of John. We have not heard a good explanation for why he does not call himself these things. Why these sayings are not recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, M, Q, or L. Why did they think it wasn't important to tell us this, that Jesus was making these kinds of claims for himself, if he really said them? The alternative that I'm proposing is that Jesus did not say those things about himself, the early traditions had no record of him saying these things about himself. 
The sources for the Gospels had no record of them saying these things for himself. The earliest Gospels had no record of them saying these, these things for himself. The only time he says these things about himself are in a single Gospel written 65 years after the fact. How would this author know what Jesus said? Are you able to quote lines from Obama's last State of the Union address, word for word, correct? If you can't do that for something that happened three months ago, or however long ago it was, what makes you think you'd be able to do it in 60 years? And what if we didn't ask you? What if we asked somebody who knew someone whose cousin's mother was next door neighbors with a woman whose husband had a cousin who heard from you what Obama said, and he's going to get it correct? It seems unlikely. The Gospels are not recording the things Jesus really said. This is not a revolutionary claim. That's why historians have to approach the Gospels. And when historians approach the Gospels, they don't deny that they're documents of faith, and that they're useful for your personal, theological beliefs, for your devotions, for, for what you personally believe. But that does not make them historically accurate. If a historian wants to say they are historically accurate, then he has to prove it. That's the problem. And that's why the vast majority of historians who are not personally committed to Jesus, personally on theological ground, that do not believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that's why they simply think that Jesus didn't call himself divine. But it's not only them. New Testament scholars, throughout this country will tell you that the sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John are not historically accurate. Thank you.